welcome to episode 59 of Texing, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Hey, Jason, how you doing? Hey, Justin, how are you doing? <laughs> how about that for a high-energy intro? It is. Well, I need it this early in the morning. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I got a bunch of topics for today. I got a bunch of topics. I've got one I want to get straight into. All right, let's do it then. Git is cool. Git is cool? Yes, Git is very cool. Working with Sebastian, um, he's basically forced me to uh, to move over to Git for, for future Swarm development. Yeah, he said he was a Git addict. Yeah, he is a Git addict, and I can see why. Um, now, he does it all on the command line, but I use uh, Smart Git, and I have to say it is wicked. But the one thing that's really amazing about it, that I mean, for me anyway, this is what I think is very cool, is that you can be working on a branch... The, the 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 whole branch management is wait wait really hold on hold on hold on back up back up back up in yeah. case there are any listeners who aren't familiar with Git Git is a distributed uh, source control system yeah right I'll tell you the best way to describe it and it it was uh, created by Linus Torvalds right I think so yeah I think it was created by him I don't know whether he did the Mercurial or the Git no no he created uh, Git and. And, and and since then it's caught a lot of on on fire, and a lot of it has to do with I think the popularity of GitHub in particular. Well, so so the thing about Git is when you commit, you can either commit to the repository externally, or you can commit to your local disk. So you can work completely offline with Git. So you can just keep on going offline, and then you can you basically push your changes. You can propagate your changes to a bunch of different servers, as many as you need. But the thing is, is that this this concept of branching. Are you familiar with that, Jason? In, mm-hmm. in, okay. Yeah. So let's say you, you have your release version and then you want to branch and you want to create some, new, some ni- nice new feature for your website. Right. So with Git, you can very quickly, basically instantly create a new branch. So let's say Swarm, uh, I wanted to create a new branch for the ability to create different board layouts. So I just okay. call, the, call the branch different board layouts. And the thing that Git lets you do is you specify... On your hard disk, which directory you're working from, what's your working directory? And you may have two or three different branches, but with Git, when you flip the branch, what it does is it instantly flips around the files in the directory on the disk. So in other words, you can quickly flip between versions without having... So with with SVN, if if you want to do it, typically the way that I've had to do it in the past is... I've had to create three three local web servers, for example, to work on three different versions of the site. Okay. Whereas with Git, when you flip it, it flips it within the same one directory. So you only need your one web server, and you can instantly flip backwards and forwards between versions, which is so, very no, cool. Can't you, can't you do something like that with uh, SVN or um, Subversion? I mean, can't you do forking? You have a yeah, you, 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 can, you can do branches, but um, it... you. Basically, you have to check out a different working copy. Okay. Right? So, and so how so, is that different? How is branching different than forking? Branching in Git versus forking in Subversion? Well, there's, there's, it's branching in Subversion as well. Okay. Um, it's, the, it's the same thing. The, the difference is, is that you, do you, you run a local web server, right? Or have you ever run a local web server? I have. I don't, but I have. Okay. So, well, you know the way that it, when, when you uh, run your web server, you point to htdocs, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where it pulls everything from. So right. the difference is, if you want to work on three different branches in Subversion, you have to have three web servers running or three virtual servers and point to three different HD docs. Okay. Right? But with Git, you can just flip a switch and it will instantly change all the files within the same one HD docs. So it's, it's the same kind of location Okay. when you flip over, which makes it incredibly fast at 
flipping between different um, different things and different versions that you're working on in the version control system. So actually, it's not just version control, it's part of workflow. It's like it gives you the ability to compare one against the other really quickly. Now, I had heard that Git, while being more powerful, more flexible, was also more complicated and uh, and confusing for people. Have you found that to be the case, or has it been pretty straightforward? Well, Sebastian, like one Git has a similar kind of thing to the App Store, where you have to deal, you have to set up a, you know, the whole SSL uh, generate keys kind of thing. Sure. So, so you have to do some key generation and, and get that installed at the beginning. Um, <clears throat> there's obviously step by step how tos online to help you get started. Um, but Sebastian did that for me. It, it, I mean, I wouldn't have thought that it would be too difficult. But then from that point forward, I used this visual client called SmartGit, which um, is basically a Mac OS X visual client. And okay. it's brilliant. I mean, it's to be honest, it's better than the Subversion visual, visual clients on the Mac. So, yeah, no, I'm really happy with it. Now, uh, on the Windows, there's I think there's a... Tw- Tortoise Git, um, which is available, which integrates right into your um, Windows or, uh, Windows Explorer, just like there's a there's a Tortoise SVN. Yeah, Tortoise SVN is, is fantastic, and I and I can only imagine if the same guys are making the Tortoise uh, the Tortoise Git, that's going to be great too. Right, I yeah. haven't used that. I know I, I know that there's been com- there has been complaining about the lack of support or lack of quality support on Windows for Git, yeah. but I would imagine um, Tortoise Git is pretty good. I've installed it, but I've never used it. <laughs> So, I mean, I use a uh, subversion now, um, but that's that's it. Anyway, just just wanted to say. So, I mean, just basically, smart Git and Git have been a revelation for me. Really, really nice. Very, so you very and impressed. you and um, Sebastian are are collaborating on sw- the Swarm AI, right? That's right. And and then as as he's playing with it, he's also finding bugs with the game, and then I'm fixing the bugs and pushing them up, and then he's checking them out and making sure that I fixed it correctly. Right, right. And so yeah. for new listeners, uh, Sebastian, why don't you uh, give the background on Sebastian, give the one-minute background. The one-minute background is, um, <laughs> I'm kind of bored of saying this, but anyway, Swarm is a game that I developed in 2005, and um, it is a strategy game, a board game, and uh, I needed some help building an AI, and um, I met Sebastian via Twitter, and he's now joined me in helping me make the AI for Swarm. Right, and it's available on the iPad at swarmsg.com. You can uh, get a, uh, you can watch a screencast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, well, that's great. So, how, well, how's the progress on that? Yeah, progress is good. Um, I'm still still waiting for the release candidate for uh, Cerebro, which is what Sebastian calls his AI. Oh, that's a great name, Cerebro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well done, Sebastian. Very clever. Why didn't we think of that? Hey, Cerebro. Uh, it sounds like a. Uh, it sounds like a supervillain or something. Isn't it? You Someone who's going to take over the world. Yeah, it sounds like some some brilliant genius supervillain, Cerebro. That's perfect. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm just I'm just waiting for the release candidate. Then um, I've essentially uh, pretty much integrated it into the game. We've we've made some changes with the game so that you can have different board layouts and different different concepts. Also, we've had another idea which I think is going to really help Swarm, which is um, rather than people get straight into the full game, now we've got this game type screen, and essentially each of the games starts off simple, and and then the next game introduces a new concept. Of, so, for example, the first yeah. game you just play and it's really about capturing and then the next game you play and it introduces ranking and the next game you play introduces the queen. So it's like a, a learning, a training thing in its own right, the way that the games are laid out. And they're on much smaller boards so that it looks a lot less daunting when you start. 
I think that's a great idea. Um, now, is that is this the way it's going to work on the iPad? So when you start the game, the very first time you play, it's going to ask you, do you want to start with the simple version and work your way forward and, or go to, straight to the... It's not even going to ask you. It's just going to go straight to the simple version. Then there's going to be a button saying game types. Every game type has a description about what it introduces and why it's good. And um, it's also been cool because I've been able to introduce completely new game concepts like a game called Bubble Wrap, uh-huh. <laughs> where basically the entire uh, board is full of pieces. So from the first move, you, you're going to take three of your opponent's pieces and you just it's just like gradually clearing down the board. So there, there is no spaces. Do you know what I'm saying? That's very cool. Um, yeah. uh, well, so one thing, you know, it's, it's awesome is so in our interview uh, a few days ago, our, our previous show with uh, David Fogel, yeah. who for anyone who has listened to that, it was a really interesting show. David um, evolved the a world-class checkers playing algorithm um, without introducing any expert knowledge. And he's an expert in artificial intelligence and very interesting guy. But anyway, his comment on Swarm was that he thought it was brilliant and creative and like nothing he'd seen before. So how was that? How'd that make you feel? I've, it was amazing. I mean, like, here's a guy who's obviously looked at a whole bunch of different board games, and he was saying that, um, you know, when he's looked at any new games before, he's like, oh, that's just a rehash of this other game. But right. this time he was like, no, this actually is really original. And the, the best compliment was, it makes me want to buy an iPad. <laughs> yeah. No, that was great. I, 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 was really, uh, I was really happy for you when he said that. I was like, that's awesome. That is yeah, really that is cool. cool. That. Um, they get that kind of response from someone like uh, David. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. Well, you know, I've, I noticed that there's a lot of these iPad competitors coming out, these Android-based iPads that yeah. are going to they're going to be really inexpensive, like 100, and they're already available. I think some on Amazon for like 150 bucks, and they mm. look they look they look very similar to the iPad. They look almost like clones, but they run Android. So if you're writing this thing, if you're writing or since you've written. Um, swarm using Absolute or Titanium, yeah. it automatically compiles to Android. So you can release an Android version um, of Swarm. That's fantastic. And, and also, um, because the whole thing's written in HTML and CSS and JavaScript, uh, I could potentially release a web version as well. You could. You know yeah. what you could do? If these, if these iPads are like really, really cheap, right? They get down to like 100 bucks. Yeah. You could go, you could say, take a month or two of uh, revenue profit from plug you or from swarm yeah. you'll buy 10 or 20 of the cheap ones preload it with uh swarm and send it to like some really big time uh game reviewers or people you really want to have take a look at it oh that's a good idea i mean it's it's a little uh it's a little bit of stuntish but i mean you know if someone sends you an ipad and says hey check this out when you know games on you're what you're welcome to the uh keep the uh the computer people will be like well all right yeah <laughs> all right. check out your your game for the ipad or the i tablet or whatever you know i mean because it really wouldn't be that expensive um if if i mean as these uh as these ipads get down to like 100 150 bucks a piece yeah, I mean, just think, cool. yeah just think about it just i mean just think about who you'd like to have review your game so um so go on that's my top my couple of topics have you got one yeah well first thing i wanted to uh you just you know bring up before we forget is um you know that we've we've started our um tech newsletter right oh, okay we've yeah. started collecting emails for it and so we'll remind anybody who any of our listeners who are uh, remotely interested uh in in the texting newsletter to go to our uh, our sign up page and where is our sign up page it's just they just sign up directly on our 
Yeah, it's textinglive.com and just uh, there's, a, there's a box up the top of there and you just, an email address, enter it. Yeah, so I had some ideas for it. So one thing I was thinking is, you know, obviously we'll, we'll put like a, we'll put the synopsis of, of say the week shows. Let's, let's say that we end up doing it once a week, right? Yeah. And we have, we'll, we'll have the synopsis for the interview show and of the discussion show and all the relevant links or related links. And what I was thinking we could also do is have like Justin's links for the week and Jason's links for the week. So you could pick up your top three or five, like you absolutely have to read this. That's a good idea. And, um, you know, we, we got to maybe start there. Maybe we have one or two more ideas if there's anything really interesting we want to bring up. But, you know, try and give people something that's worth worth checking out. It's worth receiving. And, um, you know, well, I think we should well, you know, probably maybe start another week or two once we get a few more email addresses. But don't you think it's also a good idea to just ping out a quick email when we release an episode? I, I think I'm, I'm wondering. I mean, you know, we, we do it twice a week, so that's a lot. I mean, I, I mean, we could try it, but I, I'm just I, I would be a little concerned that twice a week might be too often. But you know, we could try. it. We'll see. Uh, I think okay. once a week might be a little reasonable because once a week we'll have our you know it's like you have your interview show, you have your discussion show, you have our links for the week. It's not too much. Right, so I guess so. It's like a digest. So once a week we send out the email and we say what the discussion show was about. We say what the interview show was about, and then put our, our top links. I mean, it'd, it'd, be, it'd be better to have people feel like they want more email and not less. Right. <laughs> right. They're like, you know, I kind of like this, but damn, twice a week I'm feeling like I'm getting inundated. You don't want people to have that reaction. You'd rather yeah. be like, oh, yes, it's another good links. This is some cool stuff. Oh, yeah, that's right. I should go check out the latest episode. I forgot. I got behind. Something like that. I mean, I'd rather have that reaction. And I don't know. I don't know if a week maybe too often. Maybe a week is the right number. We'll have to see. It's just something you have to experiment with um, and see how people react. But obviously, we want to. We want to. We want to send something out that people are, are excited to get and find valuable and not annoying. Yeah, right? definitely. And and ultimately, the reason to do this. Obviously, we'd like to continue to engage with our listeners, which has been really fun on the blog. I mean, we get lots of. Un- Unbelievable comments, oh, so many almost that I have a hard time keeping up with providing some good responses because I feel sort of like if someone's going to take time to write like a two or three paragraph um, comment, and usually they're very insightful and they're making usually very a lot of technical um, suggestions or giving some good insight into particularly stuff that we're working on, App Ignite or Swarm. That you sort of feel like, okay, well, I got to address each one of these points. It's like, well, this could take me like twenty minutes to even <laughs> even yeah. write it. Right, you get like a lot of them. So anybody writes a great email, a comment. If I don't respond to it right away, just know that I'm trying. I'm just trying to get behind. But anyway, I I find it really rewarding. Well, yeah, I'm I'm also hoping that we can we can respond to a few of them in this show, but maybe a little bit later. Hey, right. talking about um. Okay, oh, say whole... one more thing. One more thing. One more thing. Yeah, go along the same lines. Uh, I you know I got a landing page up for Epic Night while I'm in a, to collect uh, emails for the beta, um, the private beta. So anyone who's been at all interested in what I've been talking about with App Ignite, which is a uh, web-based... Um, it allows you to build web applications without having to write code. Um, it's sort of like an ultra-rapid web application development system. Yeah. And anybody who thinks that's interesting or remotely useful and would like to see, check it out, just go to appignite.com and uh, just uh, leave your email address. And I'm hoping towards the end of the summer that I can start the private beta and I'll start send, sending out accounts. So appignite.com. Um, so that's it. So what was your, what were we going to say? Well, what I was going to, what I was going to say totally relates to what we're talking about. Someone signed okay. up to the texting, uh, mailing list okay. and 
looking at their email address, I can see that they've they found out a fantastic hack. And maybe this is something that a lot of people know about, but I just saw it for the first time and I thought, yeah, that rocks. Okay. So what they did is a guy called Stuart, I'm not going to give his full name, um, basically signed up and it's it's a Gmail account. So his his Gmail account is at the beginning and then he has a plus sign and then texting at gmail.com, right? So in other words, if you have a Gmail account, you can just add on to the end of your username plus whatever at gmail.com. And so that allows you to sign up for multiple different things, but you can tell the source, you can see whether... You're, you've got spam from that list or not. Do you see what I'm saying? Repeat that one more time to me so I just want to make sure I understand it. Okay, so let's say, so I'm justinvincent at gmail.com, right? So let's say I want to sign, right. up, to the, I want to sign up to the texting mailing list, but I want to find out if they send me spam or if they send me anything bad. Okay. So the only way, I, the, the quick way for me to filter on that is if somehow I know it's from them, right? Okay. So what I can do is I can sign up with justinvincent plus texting at gmail.com. Okay. So any mail they send to me is going to be sent to justinvincentpluxtexting at gmail.com. But you have to set up that account. That's a no, whole separate email. No, no, you don't. That's the point. It's just on the fly. You just put a plus, right? Huh. So you, your that's username... So that's what I'm saying. So it's your username plus whatever. Okay. And, and it will get to you, and, it, and that way you can tag stuff coming to you very oh. easily. And you set up the filter in Gmail? Yeah, you just basically you can just make up random things. So it's Justin Vincent plus whatever at gmail.com. And you just you can make up as many as you need for any of the lists that you sign up to. And it'll automatically still get routed to Justin Vincent at gmail. It automatically gets routed to Justin Vincent at gmail.com. And then it's up to you. You can set up filters, you can set up labels or whatever based on anyone sending an email, uh, an address to that specific. Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. So the Justin Vincent plus, uh, uh, you know, Texting is the username. Well, what happens is it goes to, like, I've just got one account, justinvincent at gmail.com. Okay. Everything will come to me, to justinvincent uh-huh. at gmail.com. But okay. I can set up filters to look for the incoming email. Okay. Right. Uh, and if but I, the email if I, you're entering into the, e- the email you're entering is justinvincent plus g- uh, texting at gmail.com. Exactly. And it still so, goes to you? Yes, exactly. It still goes to you. So you can basically have wildcards on the end of your account name. See, I, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. So I probably, I'm probably coming across as dense to some of our listeners, but it just, <laughs> just didn't seem like that was possible. So, yeah, so basically, <laughs> I apologize, everyone, for uh, sounding like an idiot, but I just didn't quite understand the that that was even possible. So, so basically, with Gmail, you can essentially have wildcard email addresses, but they all come to you, and it makes it very easy for you to track who is sending what to you, and you can see then, if all of a sudden you start getting a whole bunch of spam, you can see, hey, I signed up to this mailing list, and now I'm getting a whole bunch of spam, and it's all from them. They've given out my email address. Yeah, that's really cool. I like that. Yeah. yeah. So, with that <laughs> It took a long mind, time, but we got there. <laughs> Right, right. It took me a while. <laughs> I was in the remedial class, you know. <laughs> you got to explain things to me like five times before I get it. Um, yeah, the, uh, yep, so with that in mind, go sign up. Please go sign up to TechZingLive.com, uh, tech and uh, let's get this email newsletter going. Um, so, uh, you know, yesterday, after last week's episode, I, I brought up with you the idea. I said, you know, we should really go out of our way and make sure that we contact anyone who we discussed on the show or any websites that we discussed or, or web apps. Right. And one of them that I brought up in the last episode was Coder.io, Coder.io. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, the developer of Coder.io is Peter Cooper. 
And I emailed him and said, hey, just to let you know, we uh, talked about Code.io. I think it's really cool. Keep up the great work, that kind of thing. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. By the way, I, he's like, I know. I already actually already listened to Texting Live. Or Texting, I was like, what? <laughs> That's really cool, you know? He's like, yeah, I listened to it when, uh, he said he listened to it when he's feeding his daughter at night or something. And uh, and uh, so that was very cool. Um, and he hasn't actually launched Code.io officially. He said he got kind of uh, bullied into it by his uh by his uh, Twitter followers, um, but I I don't know I look at Code.io and I think it looks like a very functional. But it was also quite coincidental because he heard of texting through um, a friend of his who I used to work with. Uh, That's right. What was that story? Who were, who who was it? I think it's Dave Dave Hunt. It? Wow. Yeah, it's yeah. a small world. Yeah. So he he's a te- he's already a texting listener and he knows you through another guy. <laughs> and you just randomly contacted him because you thought his yeah. work was good. Yeah, so I, you know, and I talked to Peter about getting getting him on the show because I thought it'd be really interesting to hear about Coder.io, and I'm pretty sure I read a blog post of his that popped up on Hacker News about a week or so ago about how he sold his first startup too early, or he kind right. of, or, or he probably didn't. He kind of regrets it, um, and it was a really interesting article, and and uh, I think he got a lot of points on Hacker News, and he's got some interesting stuff that he's written, so he'd be um, he'd be fun to talk to. So we're gonna get Peter on and. You know, we'll just talk about some of his startup experience and also about well, Coder.io, which I think is really cool. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, it's kind of like the impression that I get. I'm not sure, under quite under not sure I know what the tech is, but think of it as something that just sort of scans all of these tech websites, and you can filter and sort. I think on various keywords, say Ruby or Python or NoSQL or something, and you'll see all of the articles from all of these blogs. And there's probably some kind of a ranking system that pops up, so you can just see what all the latest stuff is. It doesn't depend on people submitting it or anything. I think he's missing a trick by not having um, commenting built into Coder.io, because there's no reason to build a community. There's there's no sense of community. It's just uh, like a dumb information source. I think that mm-hmm. uh, if you put comments on there or, or hacked, hooked into social networks in some way, I think he could build a, a more interesting business. That's probably a good idea. You know, I think that's actually a very good point. Uh, you know, you get people, everybody wants to add their two cents. And then when people start commenting, they keep checking back to read their comments or read other people's comments. A lot of times on Hacker News, I don't even read the article. I just go follow and read the comments. Right. You know, or I decide if I read the article based on the comments, you know, of it. Because it, sometimes you can tell, like, oh, this is going to be a long, you know, article. Like, it's something in, say, the, in, the, in the Atlantic or The Economist, and you're like, oh, this is probably going to be like a you know, thousand or two thousand word essay. Do I want to read it? And I go and I check out the first couple comments, and if they look like, just based on what they're talking about, they kind of summarize it a little bit, and you can get a sense of it's even worth reading. Yeah, they but usually I, have a synopsis, I, yeah. Yeah, people read, you know, they kind of, you, you can kind of glean what, what the main points were and determine at that point. So the comments, I think that's a very good point. And but you know what Peter said? He's like, look, he's like, I didn't really mean to launch it. It's missing all of the stuff that I want in that. So I'm sure he's, I'm sure Peter, when you're listening to this, he's, you're probably thinking, guys, it's not done. Don't, yeah. Please don't criti- criticize it. <laughs> well, all of a sudden, we've, we've ended up in La Critique. <laughs> yeah, La Critique. Well, I like, I think Coder.io is very cool. And I really like it. I think Peter is uh, doing a great job. So nice work. Um, so to change the subject, what did you think about uh, Google killing Google Wave? Yeah, that was kind of interesting. I, you know, I don't know. Um, 
I guess as a product, maybe it just wasn't taking off. I guess, I, I, I guess when you're a company of Google size, you have to prioritize your resources. You can't just do 10,000 projects because um, I guess it just becomes too much to manage. If a project doesn't demonstrate enough growth, then they just have to make a decision. Do we want to keep funneling resources into it or not? Because we have you know 10 other things that are, that are potentially we can release that might be bigger. So even as companies with as much resources as Google has in terms of smart developers, server power, money, they still have to prioritize like anyone else. I have to admit, when I first saw Google Wave and the complexity of it, I did have this kind of hunch, like this feeling, that looks like a pretty complicated product that people are going to get that into. It just seemed overly complex. One thing I wanted to ask you about real quick is um, the our audio setup because I had oh, um, uh, Matthew or Matt Krieger. I, actually, Matt, I can't remember. How, no, I'm not pronouncing your last name. It's Krieger or Krieger. Um, ha, I, we spoke once on the phone, once or twice on the phone, and he emailed a few times. He's one of our listeners, and he was asking about the audio because he thought it was really high quality. So I said, well, you know, I really don't know. Other than that we use Skype to record it, I, I don't know what all software, hardware, Justin is using. So why don't you give us just a real quick rundown on what we are using for any of our listeners who might be curious. Well, I'm using a Mac, MacBook Pro. Um, okay. Then Jason and me uh, connect via Skype. And on the MacBook Pro, there's a great piece of software called um, Audio Hijack Pro. And what that does is it lets you capture any, any audio stream that's happening on your system. And you can also reroute the audio streams as you need. So um, I've got one audio stream set up just from my local microphone. So basically what happens is I speak into my microphone that's a relatively high quality mic. It goes in through the audio sound card and then that goes through Audio Hijack Pro, but also I've got that same mic um, synced to Skype. So Skype is using that and sending the sound to Jason. So basically Audio Hijack Pro records that locally because I just click, I click Hijack and then record. And so that file is recorded locally. And then also in Audio Hijack Pro, you can um, hijack the incoming sound from Skype. So that is also being recorded locally. Then once I've got those two files, which uh, just essentially give me like raw, uncompressed uh, sound data, then I bring them into a, a cheap uh, recording software called Traction, made by a company called Mackie. I think it's just like 100 bucks, but it's a, a pretty cool um, audio software that's, it's basically a digital audio workstation. Right. And um, I bring it in there and then just use a bunch of mastering algorithms that that has built in to make it sound as professional as possible. Um, the, the one downside to, to our current setup is that you will hear, if you listen closely and turn up loud, you'll hear kind of buzzing and hissing in the background. I can't quite work out what that is. I think it's something to do with my power lines or alternatively uh, the audio interface isn't very expensive. Because <laughs> even when I record, um, if I unplug the Mac from the from the mains, I still get the hiss, and I think it's coming from the audio box. So I'm, I may actually have to upgrade and fork out a couple of hundred. We were recording on the on Windows before you got your Mac. You used Call Burner to record instead of Audio Hijack Pro, right? Yeah. So yeah, on the Mac we were using Call Burner and everything. No, no was on Windows just you're done. using Call Burner. Sorry, yeah, on Windows using Call Burner and. Everything was just done through Skype, and there was no kind of... The, the, if you listen back to older shows to, to before I switched to the Mac, you can hear that the signal's much lower, the, the quality's much more muddy. It just isn't as good. 
And you used a levelator, didn't you? Was another piece of one of the pieces of software? Oh yeah, you yeah, used yeah. To... So that's a good point. The levelator. So so once the actual uh, audio file is recorded, then you shove it through this piece of software called the levelator, which is a free piece of software, um, and it will just give. It will just try and calculate the best possible values. So basically, it maximizes the audio in the file. What what other audio software did you use besides the levelator on the on Windows? Uh, traction. Do you have traction on Windows as well? Yeah, same thing. Yeah. on all this, right? Or I should say you did because you were the one pretty much doing the learning um, and just complaining to me about all the frustration of it. But it's hard to get decent sound from a podcast. Yeah, it's hard to get decent sound. I'm still not happy with our sound because of what happens is that you, the reason why you can't hear <laughs> the humming and the buzzing is because I cut it out. <laughs> Whenever I edit a show, I actually go through the show and cut out the, the, the hissing um, in between when we speak. And that's taking a, a lot of time, and it's obviously pretty painful. Um, so I'm, that's why I'm hoping to upgrade to a much more expensive uh, audio interface so that we can hopefully cut that out. I bought a power conditioner because I thought the issue may be that the, the power's bad, right? So I bought this uh, 200-buck power conditioner unit. Okay, wait, wait, so you said the power is bad. You mean that the power, just by getting power into your computer, was interfering with the, the sound recording? Was getting yeah, exactly. Sound so... From the mains, maybe someone's running a dishwasher two houses up, right? And it's creating interference on the line. That interference is feeding into the computer, and then the computer's doing weird things. Okay. So what I've got is bought is a, a a power conditioner box, which basically you plug into the mains, and it filters out those kind of noises. You plug it into the mains. What do you mean? What's the mains? Oh, the mains. Okay. So in the, <laughs> in England, we call the we call the power system the mains. Right. Okay. So basically, it's just like the the grid. You know what I mean? Is this something grid, you plug right? into your computer, or you plug into the wall somewhere, or what? It's a box that plugs into the grid, into the wall, right? Okay. So it takes power from the wall. Okay. And then it's got eight plugs on the back of it. Okay. And you plug everything else into it. It basically conditions the power. Now you only need that in the room that you're you, the where you're recording. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it just it. It, it plugs into the wall. <laughs> this is back to the uh, remedial, Jason. <laughs> right, I'm trying to see what you're talking about. First of all, I don't know what's a main. <laughs> what are you plugging into what? It's hard for me to okay, it's like a box that plugs into the wall, right? And it, it conditions the power and makes sure that the power is constant and uh, makes sure that it's all, you know, it gets rid of all the spikes and all the weirdness in the power source. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay. Um, However, it doesn't help the sound in the slightest, so it was a wasted 200 buck. <laughs> nice. So if you're interested, you're going to be, if anyone's interested, uh, Justin's going to be selling it on eBay any day now. Right, right yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. You know, it's, what's interesting is with all, all the editing and post-production that you do, I mean, you get it out pretty quickly, right? I mean, it, you, it takes you, what, like a couple hours total, hour and a half? Yeah, it usually takes me like an hour to two hours. I mean, I've just got pretty fast at doing it because I know what to look for. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, the spikes and pops that come through in the power, they, uh, the, the editing software I use, it draws like a WAV formation. Okay. okay. And the, the spikes and pops look very, very similar the whole way across the show. So I can just quickly zoom through and look for those spikes and pops and kill them. Right. So, um, well, it's just, it's actually, I think it's, we're doing a good job. One thing I'm, I'm happy about is that we're getting out our shows pretty much the same day. That we record. Right. No, I like that. The Wednesdays and the Saturdays. I think that rocks. Just getting them out because, you know, it's like we had Rob Walling on the show uh, a couple, about a week ago. And, well, wow, it was like three shows ago. It's, you know, 
I was about to say a couple weeks ago, but I think it was only last week. And right. they they take like three weeks to get their show out after recording it, something like that. Well, I, th- I think that's just because also that's just their that's their cycle. Yeah, but well, that's their cycle, right? But you know, they have to they have to do the they have a, an engineer. I think helps does the post production and getting the notes made and get, or getting the um, the uh, tra- the transcript and all that stuff. Right. Um, you know, I, I mean. It, yeah, I mean, whatever cycle you use, I guess, is fine. It's just funny because he said, well, when are you guys going to have – after we interviewed him, he's like – I was asking, so when are you guys have us up? It's like, I don't know, a few hours? He's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? It's already up. <laughs> We're done. So that was cool. Oh, by the way, speaking of Rob Walling, um, he uh, – I, I got his book. He, he, he was nice enough to send me a copy of his book, uh, Start Small, Stay Small, A Developer's Guide. Yeah, he said it to both of us. Yeah. I, was, I was in on the same email. Yeah, well, I was going to I was gonna read the you title. You can see but that from the CC. You, you interrupted me. I was, I was trying to help with his book. So I'm going to start again. Start Small, Stay Small, A Developer's Guide to Launching a Startup by Rob Walling. And uh, you can go to his website, softwarebyrob.com. And his um, podcast is called Startups for the Rest of Us. Startups for the Rest of Us. And, .com. and I, you know, I've, I've listened to a few episodes now, and I think they do a good job. It's, it's funny because it's just so much different than ours. That they, really, they really have one topic one theme and what they do is they come up with a number of points and they're really just trying to teach their listeners um how they've how they've done things which is it's more informational it's, it's more educational yeah, I yeah they're trying like you know it's like how to sell to enterprise customers or how to be more productive and they just kind of do it that way so it, it's more of a, it's shorter and it's more informational but it's good so check out his podcast what did you think of the startup book you know, I haven't had a chance to read it. I just got it like, you know, yesterday or something. So I haven't read it. I read the first chapter. I'd printed out and read it uh, a couple months ago. Um, and I liked it. I thought it was useful. I mean, uh, you know, like as we, as we discussed, in the, I think, in a previous discussion show, which is that it's for a particular type of startup, which is that it's the, for doing very small niche products for single founder bootstrapped companies. Right. So if you fall into that category, which is a category that I think gets largely ignored on places like Y Combinate on Hacker News, where they discuss, um, they generally discuss uh, bootstrap, um, not bootstrap, but like companies that are going to try and get angel funding. Yeah, some kind of funding, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are people who are bootstrapping on there who say, hey, check out my new startup. And, and there are people who, there are discussions about it, but I think it leans probably 80-20 towards the, you know, two or three guys trying to uh, build something and, and, and raise some funding. But obviously that's not the only way to go. Um, and Rob's uh, approach is, uh, you know, the single founder bootstrap method. A lot of times bootstrapping while having a full-time job or something and, and, and being able to build these small startups that um, are these small pieces of software that can generate some kind of reasonable amount of income. So anyway. Um, okay, I've got a topic. Go ahead. I think we should introduce a new term called Jasonism. Okay. <laughs> and uh, this Am is... Am I going to like this? this? The, uh, just... Yeah. There's something very specific. There's, like, there's a specific kind of mindset that you have. Okay. And I want to call it a Jasonism. Okay. And I, I'm going to delight our listeners with, with this story okay. that you, you told me. <laughs> so <All right>. basically, <laughs> Jasonism, uh, I, I, I can define it as... Being of a contrarian mind to the point where almost no one agrees with your methods, right? <laughs> now, I would like you to tell the listeners about your idea of a blog. Well, you know, I, I want to get a. I, I mentioned uh, offline a couple of days ago how I, how I was going to get like a really simple blog going for Epic Night, right? And I just 
just decided that I'm not going to use WordPress. I, at first I said, all right, well, I'm going to use um, Posturus, right? I'll just do it there, and, and then you can create a um, – you can have your subdomain point to there to your uh, – blog on posturus and everything but i went in and but to get able to customize it i was looking at it it was just gonna be a nightmare it was gonna take me hours to try and decipher their uh raw html and css to even figure out how to make it look like i want to look and i was like this is a nightmare i don't want to do all this crap and the same reason that you and i you know, we got wordpress for our blog and our blog looks like crap because it's too hard to uh dig unless you unless you spend a lot of time customizing wordpress and you're an expert at you know theming wordpress it's a big investment of time right you yeah. know i had said because you were like you were the one who was really big on wordpress you're like we got to use wordpress wordpress i'm like all right and then i was like all right come on, let's change the thing you're like well i don't know how to change it i'm like well great now we got this crap Crap theme. So we either have to buy a pre-made theme that's going to look like a bunch of people, other people's web theme, uh, themes, or we're going to have to spend a ton of our own time doing it, which doesn't make any sense financially, or we have to spend a bunch of money to hire somebody else who does know how to do it. So we're kind of... So what platform are you going to use for your blog? I'm not going to... You know, actually, I built my own blogging engine a while back, so I could use that, but I decided, you know what? I don't need a blog engine. You know, what is a blog? What, what, what is a blog post? It's a HTML page. That's all it is. Okay. You don't need it. And guess what? It's amazing, but I actually know HTML. So I can actually, believe it or not, go into my editor, and I can paste in some text, and I can include a header and a footer, and presto, it's like magic, but there's a, like an HTML page. That's a blog. So you're going to manually build a blog that's completely undynamic in HTML. Well, I mean, let, let me ask you this. What, what are some of the biggest blog, what are some of the biggest sites out there for, for you know, blog sites? Uh, Paul Graham, right? Paul Graham's site, right? Uh, how about even Derek Sivers or Zed Shot? All of that. They don't have categories and tag and search, and they don't have like, gee, I had seven posts in October, like anyone cares, right? They don't have like all of this extra bling and crap on their sites. And it's because it, it's completely unnecessary because it doesn't matter. All you need is, um, is maybe one page that lists, I may in some kind of an or whatever order or however you want to that lists all of your uh, you know the titles of all your blog or your articles or essays or blog posts um, a page for each blog post and maybe it's a link for RSS that's it there's no work done and you can make it look whatever you want because it's like simple dimple HTML you're the one who wrote the HTML the 10 or 15 lines of HTML so if you want to CSS like make this green or move this left shift this you can do it you don't have to spend like hours pouring over some completely inscrutable um HTML or CSS template that you know is like 15 screens long trying to figure out how the heck do I even change this to look remotely like my site which is totally a waste of time so that's that's what I'm saying where the idea for me of building a blog just purely out of HTML without any interaction or comments or whatever and just building the whole thing that way rather than using WordPress or even using just a database even using MySQL that is where I would say the term Jasonism is defined. And that is being of a contrarian mind to the point where almost no one agrees with your message. No, I, I'll bet you people agree. I'll bet you many listeners agree. Because here's the thing, right? I go to first principles. Like, you, you tend to just buy into, I think you tend to just buy into, like, whatever the majority says is everybody's doing. Like, oh, isn't this what we should do? This is best practice. Everybody use WordPress. 
Well, I'm like, that's crap. What do I need all this for? I'm not the New York Times, right? I'm not TechCrunch. I don't need all of this complicated stuff that just makes things hard to manage. All I need is a web page, and I can do that while I'm on the phone talking to you. I mean, that's all the time it takes me, right? I can, I can do it while I'm doing something else and have it done, and I don't have to worry about it. And I have complete control over it, and it looks exactly how I want. And so I just go back to first principles and say, what is it that I want? What is it do I need? I don't need all this other crap. I'm not going to worry about it. And What about comments? Okay. First of all, I'm not even sure I will even need or want comments on it because, you know, that's just, that's just one more thing that's going to take up time. But second of all, most of the comments will be like on Hacker News. And if you do want comments, you can just, you know, in, you can just use Discus, you know, Discus or Discus, whatever it is, D-I-S-Q-U-S right. or whatever. And I think you just, uh, you just um, paste in like a line of uh, JavaScript at the bottom of your page, just like Google Analytics, and it's done. And, all, and, and they manage all your comments, and I think it's even more powerful than the comment systems in WordPress. But WordPress, you know, look, I mean, WordPress is big and complicated has lots of stuff you can do with it but it's a lot more than you need so it's like do you really want all that stuff because you're going to pay a price for it in complication and, and overhead and, and just it basically it's it's here's the thing i think here's one thing i think and i was thinking about writing a blog post on this one of my first blog posts for epic night which is going to be that you know big software is like big government right it's big right. and it's expensive and it's bureaucratic and you're right you know you the reason it's created is because it helps solve all these problems for people but it's not the simplest solution and it just and you just pay a price for it, you know. Big, lots of people or lots of code lines of code, you know. Oh, we're going to make it easy to do this. We make it easy to do that. Well, guess what? I don't need one to do that for me. I don't need someone to generate HTML for me. I can just do it myself. But I pay a price. You know, I in my mind, for me, and this is obviously a personal decision. I pay way too high a price for what they're giving me because I don't need them to do the things they give me, and then they give me all this other stuff that they don't want, and in the process, I just have this big monstrosity of code that I can't completely control, and it just takes up too much of my time, and because I don't want to spend more than a couple hours on this, I just don't. But don't you think that you're kind of displaying a little bit of not invented here syndrome? I don't care about that. I will be not invented here all day long. I don't care because I've invented most of the stuff that I use and it's always worked for me. I don't like using other people's crappy code and I don't care. And I don't care how many people go, oh, you should use this and that. I'm like, well, you use it. Use it. Tell me. Did you see? Um, right. Well, no, let's finish this off. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still okay. talking about the same subject. Okay. Um, there was a, a post by, I think, a girl coder or whatever she's called. She's talking about how, you know, you just said, I don't want to use other people's crappy code. Uh-huh. And she was just kind of saying that when she first started coding, she thought whenever she got into a new project, she was thought, "Oh God, these people didn't know how to program." And um, but then the more that she un- the more that she uncovered, and the more that she realized that people were making those strange decisions because of a certain aspect of the project or whatever. And now she doesn't basically say anymore, "Oh, the- these people have done really bad code." I think that you know, typically speaking, like it-, it can't be that every coder in the world is bad. It can't be that the people who make WordPress is bad and, and PHP, like, they make their decisions because of sensible reasons. Well, that's, that's fine. You know, it, it's kind of like this, right? I mean, WordPress, and I'm not saying WordPress is crappy software, okay? I never said that. Right. It's, just, it's just very big, complicated software for what it does, right? Because it tries to, it tries to offer some kind of a solution for providing, um, provide some kind of a solution for most of the things that most people need in a blog, Right. It seems simple to me compared to Drupal. Well, I would never even consider Drupal. I mean, you know, right. But, I mean, well, maybe it's simple to Drupal, but it's like it's uh, really complicated compared to uh, an HTML page with a header and a footer included, right? 
Right. It's infinitely more complicated than that. And, um, you know, so it solves problems because a lot of people who use WordPress, the vast majority of people could don't know HTML or they know very little and they don't. And if they want comments, if they do want comments, if they want multiple people contributing it to, to the site, if they want built in search, if they want tagging, if they want all that stuff, you know, then yeah, you know, WordPress might be a good solution for you. And, but a lot of people, and I'm an example would be, uh, someone who doesn't need that stuff or really want that stuff. And if I did, um, some of it I could just code up myself if I really wanted to, and I have done in the past. But for this particular instance, um, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want any of that stuff because I want to keep it really simple because I think most of that stuff is just a distraction. I don't think it adds any value. I don't think, I'm not really convinced that tags and search and things ordered by months and all that stuff adds any value at all. I just think having a basic, a basic input form and being able to save stuff dynamically you know, and just type out the text rather than having to think about actual HTML. <laughs> I mean, dude, you like literally could write it in like, you know, Google Talk Docs and then just say save as HTML if that's what you wanted to do. Right. I mean, because in a blog, what is it? I mean, it's like you might bold a line as a title or you might insert an image or a hyperlink. I mean, you know, how, 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 many, how long does it take you to do that if you're writing? I mean, 98 percent of your effort in writing a blog post is not going to be informing the HTML. It's going to be it's going to be writing the prose and thinking of something that's worth writing. So I, well, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing what it looks like. Well, it'll be really simple. But, you know, would you say that Paul Graham or Derek Sivers or Zed Shaw, um, would you say that, they're, that they have bad blogs because they don't have any of that stuff? No, you wouldn't say no, that. No, because no. No, the only thing that's really important in these blogs is that they write something that's worth reading. That's it. Yeah, I mean, I, can, I completely agree with that. Yeah, so I just, you know, in terms of, like, crappy code, you know, you know it's not that I haven't used libraries that people have written. You know, I, I do, but I, every single time I'm very suspicious of using big libraries because I, it ends up being a pain in the butt. It ends up not doing what I want it to do and ends up being not fun. And one of the most important things about coding is that I'm having fun and I don't have fun when I don't have control and things suck. And I spend tons of time trying to sort out people's code because usually what happens is, is like you need, you know, 5% of the functionality. 2% of the functionality, but you pay this huge cost for this giant framework or this giant library learning and figuring out what's going on and trying to get it to do what you want, where it's like you could have taken the same amount of time or less, just built your own 2% of the functionality that's completely custom to what you want, and you're done, and you had fun, and you learned a lot, and when you want to go to the next step, you already are there. You're like, I already know how to do this. I can do this exactly what I want. Well, so- I'm inclined to agree with that last sentence that you just said. I mean, I think that's, that's a good point, but there's, there's like... The truth lies in the middle. I mean, there's this to me, like making the blog in HTML and it, the functionality that it, I mean, WordPress gives us so much functionality through our texting blog. I mean, it gives us the, the podcasting stuff. It gives us stats. It gives us tags. It gives us categories. Um, it gives us the ability to input stuff on the fly to change it really easily without having to do any kind of FTP stuff. All that, all those wins. And you know what? Like even. Even the whole theme thing, I mean, maybe I, I, it is difficult, but the point is, is it's, it's flexible, right? It's going to be much faster see, for I, us to I, change. I would, argue that our, I, I would argue that our blog sucks. I, I think the podcasting stuff is, is easy to do. Most of the stats we look at is on Libsyn. We don't need the tags. You know, we can't change the theme. Um, in the comments, we can just, change the theme. Why can't we change the no, theme? I mean, you or I are either going to have to put in a, you know, spend some money some real money to go buy a theme, but you and I are unable in any reasonable amount of time to go and, 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 and change the, the edit the theme ourselves to make it look. We good. could do it in a day. We could, yeah, if we do have, you really if want to spend a day. a day doing that? 
Well, how long is it going to take you to, to, <laughs> to create your blog in HTML? I don't know. Half an hour. I already did most of it in like, you know, half an hour. I mean, it's just like cut and paste the header that I already have from the Epic Night site and uh, the footer. And uh, that's pretty much it, right? It's not much to it. I guess. Right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, have you looked at the header? Of, have you looked at, you know, these, some of these other blogs? Like I said, the th- I'm just using the three examples of Zed Shaw. And- yeah, no, Paul, Paul Graham's a good one. I mean, yeah, Paul, Graham does, does seem to be, uh, Paul Graham does seem to be the way that you're talking about. Yeah, they're all very simple, and they don't, they don't need any other stuff, which I think is just distracting. Well, anyway, um, I, I think we should move off that topic because, you know, we made our point. But I just would say like this. It's, it's not about the uh, truth lying in the middle. It's just a matter of everybody has their own uh, weightings of what's valuable to them and what's not, right? So, you know, and I'm not trying to tell anybody to do anything. Everybody, you know, everybody can do whatever they want. They use whatever language they want. They use whatever software they want. I'm just telling you what I do and why I do it. I'm not giving people advice or ask anyone to do what I do. Um, but I'm certainly not going to do what other people want me to do just because they want me to do or because that's how they do it. I don't really care. Right? But and, don't you think that, that, that the, the way I described that, being of a contrarian mind to the point where almost no one agrees with your methods is true? Because in this case, I mean, if you want to point all of the blogs in the whole world, like, almost no one does it the way that you're describing. So? I'm not like most people though, right? I'm actually a but that's just all I've all I've tried to do is to introduce the term. Yeah, no, it's fine. I think you're you're probably right. I mean, people probably sitting there nodding. Yeah, that's the Jasonism. They're probably thinking, yeah, you know. And I I am a contrarian. I don't be. I'm not a contrarian on purpose. Like I don't I don't sit there. You know, we're a group of friends, and I'll like I'll take be the devil's advocate just to be a pain in the butt. That's not my approach. But what I will do is I'll look at first principles of what it is when I'm doing something, and I'll say. What's important to me, I'm not going to look at what other people are doing because I think that's, that te- often re- leads you down a false path. I will say, what is it yeah. that I want? What's important to me? And I'm just going to do that. I don't really care what anyone else is doing. Um, I, just, yeah. I, just, I just don't. And uh, because, you know, like, I, I think one of those important things is really enjoying what you're doing, being productive, obviously, and, but enjoying the process. Do it. Having you just like I love doing this, but if I'm using if I if I feel like I have to do things where other people do it because you know yeah I feel like I've been peer pressured into it and I have to use all this stuff I'm just going to be irritated and frustrated and not even want to do it. I think we should move off this. So have you got any have you got any new topics? Yeah. Um. So uh, let's see here. Um. One thing was kind of interesting. Uh, I was listening to a uh, a, a sh- I was watching a. Sh- on Big Think. Have you ever seen BigThink.com? Uh, no. BigThink.com is what they do is they do these interviews with people. And it's less of an interview. You don't, you don't actually see the interview. It's just the camera frame is right on the person. And they're usually um, leaders in their field. They're you know, scientists or economists or writers. And this one in particular was on uh, David Hannemeyer Hansen, the creator of Rails. So it's like a, vi- a video it's a vi- interview thing, isn't it? It's a video. Okay, you know, yeah. It's like 20, 30, 40 minutes kind of thing. And what they'll do is they'll show up on the screen the question, and then, he'll, and then the interviewee, uh, DHH in this case, is answering the question. And he'll go off for five or ten minutes just talking about it, and then there'll be another question. And it's really good. So go to BigThink.com. There's all kinds of fascinating interviews. Um, and I just happened to see this one because I think it popped up on uh, Hacker News or something. And... What was interesting is he – one thing is I didn't realize is that he said that he worked on Rails for a year before he released it. Hmm. Which is interesting. That's interesting, yeah. Because right? that's Pre- like Epic Night. 
Well, you know, I'm not, I, and I don't mean to just say that, you know, that is a good reason to work for a year on something. I mean, that is true. I'm, you know, it's our, it's about a year for us too on Epic Night. But you know, in the reason he didn't release it before that, he said, is because it just it wasn't good enough. He wanted to release something that was good enough for other people to use. And you know, again, I'm not trying to be a contrarian, but I think people jump on um, a bandwagon and they're like, oh, you have to release something as soon as you absolutely ha- have something. It's like, well, you need to balance it and that it's good enough for somebody to use. Because if it's not good enough for people to use, if it's just a piece of crap, that's not doing you or them any good right well it's just like always there's no one truth it just really depends and um you know of course 37 signals have always been uh, you know the contrarians in their own way because they're like you know they're not interested in raising funding and they're not interested in interested in releasing early and releasing often they're not interested in staying a protracted beta period and they don't believe in the sort of fail fast like let's just throw some out there see what people tell us we'll get feedback they know they build something for themselves that they think is great they get some feedback from a probably close group of friends and really look at it hard amongst themselves decide is this really a good solution and they release it and they're not really letting the crowd and their user base determine the direction so much as they themselves determine the direction. I mean, they do watch what people are doing, but it's less of a direct, oh, everybody wants X, so I'm going to do X. So they were known yeah. to be contrarians in that way. And I, I tend to agree with the stuff that they say. Not that I'm a 37 Singles fanboy or anything. I don't, you know, I'm not a, obviously I'm not a Rails developer and I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't actually have accounts. So did the guy, did, what's his name, David, what? David Hennemeyer Hansen, DHH is what people tell Okay, to. so did DHH, is he in um, uh, 37 Signals as well? Yeah, you didn't know that? No. I, Come I'm on, not, you Justin. Know, I'm not like, uh, I'm just not the guy, like. Awake? In the same, <laughs> in, in the same way that you, you, you know, you don't like to do things that other people do. I, I'm not really like a follow the fashion, follow the. Well, I don't even like follow the fashion. It's just like if you're in the tech world and the web startup world, it would just be. I would think it would be hard to miss that. But that's fine. Okay, that's fine. So yeah, well, that's my miss. I'm sorry. Apologies. Hey, no, no problem. I, you know, I just am surprised. So yeah, <laughs> he, D H H. Um, is he's the guy who created Rails. He invented Rails. He started out as a contractor for 37 Signals when, when 37 Signals was smaller. It was like three people or something like that, and they were, they were a consulting firm. And they had an idea. I think they had used him to do some consult, just some programming work on their consulting projects. And then yeah. I think one of the projects that they wanted to start working on was Basecamp for themselves. They wanted a, something to help them manage the projects. And I think... The story goes that DHH worked like 10 hours a week because he was still finishing up school on Basecamp. So he was working on Rails, and, and, and he wanted to try this new programming language, Ruby, that someone had, had pointed, him, pointed it out to him as an interesting language. And so he said, oh, you know, maybe I'll try this new language. And, and then while he was just new language, he's like, well, I need some, I, you know, it doesn't have some of these basic tools, so why don't I just start writing some basic libraries to help me you know, write these web app, this web application. And so he, that's where Rails started and it essentially kind of blossomed into something that he could release to the world, which he did a year later. Mm. So anyway, and I just thought that was... Worked a, for him. Yeah, it wasn't this like, oh, he worked on something for six weeks, you know, and he just threw it out there and let the community play with it. No, he built his something for himself and he worked on it for a long time until he thought it was a, you know, fairly complete, usable... Um, piece of software or technology and then he released it so I thought that was interesting it was just sort of just because it was probably not what most people would have imagined happened 
So did you see um, Paul Graham's The Future of Startup Funding blog post? Yeah, so he's talking about the power of the uh, is going to be moving more towards the founders and away from the investors. Yeah. Right, essentially. I thought it was an interesting post, yeah. So the, 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 exactly that power is moving and also we're going to be moving towards uh, micro-investments, mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot more closer to micro-investments. And I guess the whole YC Combinator is basically reshaping Silicon Valley and its image, and there's a blog post about that as well. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that whole side of things kind of changes the investment paradigm. And I wondered, because you know typically you're not interested in investment, right? The investment approach. Well, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I'm not interested. It's not that I'm not, I don't think it's right for some companies. I'm just saying it's probably not right for me and my stage in right. life and what I'm trying to do. As I've mentioned before, you know, I have a wife, three kids, and a mortgage in an expensive part, part of the country, being, you know, passing to California. So I can't live off, you know, 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 grand a year, which, you know, I don't know what the range of what startup founders pay themselves. They don't pay themselves much. I, I just really couldn't right. yeah, yeah. afford to do that. So it's not an option for me, really. But it's great for it's great for the young, you know, for the new the young kids today's generation. I mean, it sounds like a lot more people will get funded. Yeah, well, you know, look, look, look. If you're if you're young, if you're say you know don't have a house or kids or something, or you're young and you're in your twenties, or you, you know, and you don't have a lot of of uh, financial obligations, and you can live real cheap. You can live off two or three grand a year a month or something like that, and you're you're okay. Um, and if you're older, I mean, maybe you've had some success, so you have some money in the bank. Maybe you sold a startup, or maybe you used to work at a high paying corporate job, and you were able to stash away cash for a number of years, and then you're like, okay, well, I don't. I don't have to make, you know, X number of thousands of dollars every month. I can go on the cheap for six months to a year because we have, you know, a nice big nest egg. You know, so that, that can work for that in that context as well. There's probably a lot of contexts where funding will work fine. It's just one, one, I'm one particular context where I just don't think it, it fits very well with that model. So the other thing, the, the other shortcoming of funding, of course, is that two things. One is you, you give up a certain amount of control. You know, you have investments yeah. that you have to placate and you have to, you know, if you're, if you're pivoting or changing directions or stuff and they think you shouldn't be, or they, they're like, well, uh, you know, then you have to convince them and it's much slower rather than just realizing, okay, we got to change directions. This is not right. And just doing it, you have to set up a meeting and talk and let them mull it over. And so it really slows things down. Um, and if, especially, and it just really depends. And if you have more than one investor, then, you know, as, as, as often the case of these angel investments, you have two or three or four angel investors. So you got to get everybody on board if you're changing directions direction and the other thing too which is what it's been pointed out by i think uh, a number of people i think um was it uh the guy who did that duck go do you know his, uh weinberger uh, i can't remember his first name he, he he wrote a number of uh, he wrote an interesting blog post about how much you'd have to sell your company for if you had two or three founders and you had x rounds of investment and you you know that sort of thing so it's like well if you had three founders two co-founders and you went through a couple rounds of investment and you sold for 20 30 million i mean you know in the end of the day you may not have that much you know you may have made a lot more had you just stayed as a single founder and built it up by yourself (laughs) you know i mean it just that reminds me of a blog post that i was reading called um fu money did you did you read that like reevaluating um Fu money. I'm, I'm not going to say the word because it's uh, it's bad. It's a rude word. But did you read that blog post? Yeah, I saw the uh, I saw the post, um, and it was it was interesting because essentially what he's saying is that you know you can you can make a fair amount of money. You can make what he calls your fu money. But uh, you know, obviously, if you make thirty million dollars, you can 
do whatever you want. But, you know, let's say made a He's couple, talking like two million. Yeah, two, 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 two to five million. Two to, you know, or something. You don't make a ton. You make enough to where you're financially independent and you're, you know, I guess wealthy, but you're not, you know, uh, you're not Donald Trump or something. And the fact is that depending on the economic climate, depending on what inflation is, depending on the stability of the economic system, because right now, you know, you're getting hardly any return on savings, CDs and everything. So you can't really live off. Yeah, exactly. So you couldn't retire off, off uh, let's say you had a windfall of two million. You couldn't, well, you can retire, but it's not going to give you the most um, comfortable lifestyle. Let's just say it's going to be like 70 grand a year or something like that for the next 20 or 30 years or 40 years or whatever. So he's, he's basically saying that, though, that where we used to think that if we, if we struck it rich and we made 2 million with our product, we could be like, oh yeah, I, I can put my shoes up and that's great. Now he's saying that's just not enough. No, yeah, you, it's it's better to have income streams, which it kind of it, it harkens back to our our interview with Pete Michaud, uh, retired at twenty five, which is still to this day one of the more popular shows we've ever had, and he talks about how rather than he's ha- he's more secure than if he just had a bunch of money in the bank because he has. Uh, I don't know, a number, at least half a dozen going on, that maybe a dozen different income streams that all make a fair amount. They're all growing and they're all completely uncorrelated and independent of one another. Um, so, uh, and that's actually a more stable thing than just having money in the bank in a way. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, no, and, and but the final, I think the final part of that blog post that was interesting was he said that rather than trying to get FU money, you should be trying to get FU influence. Right. So that basically you are, you know, like a Paul Graham or a Jason Freed, so that ultimately whatever happens, you're always going to be in work. People are going to listen to you. You're always going to be, in, be able to generate new income streams. Right. Right. What do you um, think? Yeah. No, I, you know, like, you know, it's like rather it's the, it's kind of go back to the saying is like you give a man a fish and he eats for a day, teach a man a fish and he eats for a lifetime. Right, and right, it's yeah. sort of similar to that. It's like if you have valuable skills that people are willing to pay for that the world values then you're going to be uh, you're going to be in a very good position than if you just have capital sitting in a bank and you don't really have a lot of skills that the world values now obviously having influence is in a way uh, it falls in the same category as having valuable skills you have something that people want they want your opinion they want your voice and what your presence at a conference or whatever. Um, and that's just, that's essentially the same thing. And it, and it, I guess it offers the ability to make even more money than most skills would provide unless you're say a cardiac surgeon or something. Um, but uh, you know, you, and you don't have to do a lot of work for it. You just have to maintain sort of your influence, right? Cause eventually cause a lot of times people are, a lot of times people are popular for like three or five years or 10 years. And then it's like after a period of time, nobody's really listening to anymore. It's kind of, They've kind of faded because the world has changed or whatever they were talking about, whatever opinions they had were really important and controversial and interesting for some period of time. But then the world just changed and that person is no longer that interesting anymore. The only thing about that is not everyone can be a blogger or a podcaster or have a public voice. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I kind of agree with it on some levels, but on other levels, I'm like, you know, it's it's just for the select few who have those kind of skills. Well, yeah, I, it was kind of interesting. It was uh, it kind of reminds me of the uh, book the uh, Black Swan, the Black Swan, yeah, um, by uh, Nassim Taleb, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with. I read Fooled by Randomness. I read half of Black Swan, and then after halfway through, I just kind of got bored because he just and that was kind of long winded and and everything. Interesting ideas. But one of the things he talks about is, you know, how I, I think 
I don't know if he was talking the unfairness or just not, not the unfairness of it, but just sort of the it's not really good risk return to try and go after like what you're talking about, being one of the select few that can make a ton of money off of selling something over and over again, say like a book or a software or something. It's like if you develop skills that people want and you make money by the hour, you know, you're you're is a very high chance that you can develop a skill that like that because yeah. the world tells you like we need you know, doctors, we need lawyers, we need, you know, software developers, we need whatever, you know, and you just go and you develop that school and you're assured that you're pretty much guaranteed that you can at least pay your bills and eat and have a, you know, have a decent life. Now, the chance that, oh, I'm going to be a famous writer, or I'm going to be a famous um, film director, or I'm going to be a successful athlete, or I'm going to be this famous speaker that everybody wants to have. It's like, yeah, well, there's very few of those spots available. <laughs> it's really... You, know, you could try and do that, but there's a good chance that you're not going to fail just by the odds. And it's, um, it's just that's why people always say, you know, if you're going to be a professional athlete or something or, or, a, or a famous, you know, artist or entertainer, it's like people say, have a backup plan. <laughs> yeah. You know? Have a backup plan. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting um, about that. Well, anyway, you, you go on I, before I, I'll, I won't. No, I was going to ask you to uh, flip the topic, actually. Do you have something else? Yeah, well, it's kind of related to that, which is this idea of... Well, there's a blog post I read. It was called Life's Unfair, Do Something or Just Get Used to It. Right. Um, and the article itself wasn't that great. It was in the BBC uh, article, and it was, it was only moderately interesting. But it kind of reminded me of a couple conversations I'd had just this week about luck. And really, you know, one of the ways you increase your luck is by doing things and by talking to people by getting out in the world and doing stuff you can you can get out the world vir- out in the world virtually or physically or both <laughs> but the more that here, here's what i think right it's like when the what what can be viewed as luck are what other people who you have no control of or no visibility into do something that affects you in a positive way right you get a call out of nowhere and someone says hey justin you know i want to help you with swarm <laughs> right were you lucky yeah. yes you were lucky but you with swarm you created luck because you created something i don't know if you spent many 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 hours creating the game testing it all the stuff probably georgie's looking at you like what are you working on <laughs> all these years right yeah and then you talked about it. you told the world that you're doing you talked about it on the podcast you did some stuff on the web and you know the fact that um, Sebastian found you on Twitter was because you communicated. You you kind of cre- increased your sort of surface area. Your luck. I would cre- I would call it increasing your luck surface area, right? You know what? Just just to quickly tap into that. I mean, basically for nine months, I've been posting up like ten really good quality links on Twitter every day. Mm-hmm. So he's he's seen this absolute consistency for nine months. And uh, you, you heard him on the show. He, he basically said, yeah, that was the reason why I looked at your story because you've, you've always, always had consistently good content on Twitter. And so that's the reason why I paid attention to you. Well, you slowly, you slowly built up your credibility, right? You, you slowly, so here's the thing. It's like two things. Like you, you can go out to the world and try and get a lot of people to look at you and create your, increase your, 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 your surface area of visibility, but you have no credibility. People are like, why get out of my way? You're a spammer. You know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, who are you? Right. But if you're doing something, if you literally go out and create stuff out of nothing or do something interesting, um, 
then you're increasing your credibility. People are like, huh, that guy, that's kind of cool that this guy created and or this stuff that he's writing or whatever. That's interesting. So people, so you start slowly increasing your credibility and then, but you have to, t- you have to increase your cert- your sort of luck service area also by making sure people are aware of it. It's that, it's that combination of doing interesting stuff and constantly communicating and letting the world know about it. And that's how you increase that, that luck service area, I think. I like this. I like that term surface area. I think that's, that's great. Yeah, I was just kind of thinking like, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're just like, like solar panels collecting sunlight, right? You want as much service yeah. there as possible because you can't determine what the rest of the world is going to do. And, and a lot of times, you know, if you have, if you have um, a lot of people looking at what you're doing, there are things that are going to happen outside of you. People are going to contact you who, to do business with you or want to invest in you or want to partner with you or who knows what, want to invite you to do something with them. You just don't know what these things are going to be. Um, and so that's kind of what luck is. But you can increase your, your, pos- your probability of luck. And part of it is being open-minded. There's been articles about that, too, that people who are really open-minded tend to, and try new things, tend to feel lucky. And partly is, part of, part of the reason is, is they get out of the routine, they do different things, they cre- sort of increase their surface area, and just random things sort of happen, and eventually something really interesting and surprising and positive happens. I mean, if anyone was to ask me, like, was it, has it been worth you know, diligently tweeting for nine months, I'd definitely say yes, you know, like just, just even from that one, from that one uh, connection. Well, let's think about the things that you've done. Okay. Let's just talk about, you know, you specifically, so Plugio, you, you, you worked on Plugio, right? Right. That you, you, you created Swarm out of nothing. You worked really hard on Swarm. Now you're not only creating the first version of Plugio as well. You blogged on Plugio. um, And you did the, and you've done, you've been, you know, kind of working on your Twitter um, presence and then and then also of course the podcast right we've worked yeah. very hard on this podcast for the past year you know almost up to 60 shows and um that and and i was and i, I think the podcast for us is an example of that because we're increasing our luck um our our, our luck service area because more we, we get a we, we have a growing audience more people are finding out about it and we haven't really gotten any huge luck like we haven't gotten any 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 big blog or anything point to us and drive you know huge traffic to us yet but we can we continue to increase the pro- possibility of that happening right right that we'll have really big growth but we have had uh, a luck in the sense that or what people might deter determine as luck that by creating the podcast has given us the ability to interview um, interesting people and meet some really interesting people who are listeners who just commented and, and emailed us, right? Who you would not have been able to connect with probably otherwise, or we would not have been able to connect with otherwise. So for an example, you know, I was, I was emailing back and forth with David Fogel after the, uh, uh, the next the day after the podcast, you know, and there's this possibility that we could end up working together on something it looks like. So would you so would you recommend to all of our listeners to start a podcast? No, no. I mean, the podcast is just one example. You know, you kind of have to do what feels, um, you know, like right to you, right? Some people like to write. Play to your very strengths. Yeah, you play and play to your passion, I guess, too, right? And they're usually sort of related. Some people, though, like, you know, you just watch an episode of American Idol and you can realize a lot of people, their passion and their talents are not the same thing, right? Right, right. <laughs> you know, a lot of people think they're awesome singers and they suck. And a lot of people, like, I, I can tell every, and sports, right? A lot of people think they're great soccer players or basketball and they suck and they have no idea how bad they are. It's, and it's frustrating to Stephen <laughs> watching them you because know, they, they think they're great and you're just like, oh, this is painful. And, but if you're kind of honest with yourself and you can say, okay, I do have some talent or I have some ability and I have passion in it, um, 
then then do whatever it is, whether it's writing software. In our case, it's you know like things we're talking about: writing software, building web stuff, or doing a and the, ma- the mailing list as well. I mean, every, each little each little part adds to the surface area. Okay, so how about we do our quote of the day, our quote of the week segment? <laughs> All right, what you got? All right, well, I got this one from David Fogel. Actually, we were um, we were exchanging emails uh, the, uh, the day after the show, and we ended up uh, having a conversation. And uh, one thing I pointed out to him was that he was doing things when people were saying, you know, they couldn't be done, say, evolving the world class checkers playing algorithm. Yeah, so that's the thing that he did something that. The other people in the field didn't think it was quite possible. They thought you require, would require a lot of expert knowledge, require heuristics, and you really had to exp- give information to the algorithm about the value of certain pieces, that kind of stuff. And he threw a great quote at me uh, that I, is, uh, is as follows. He goes, those who say it can't be done should get out of the way of those who are doing it. That's an old Chinese saying. Yeah, no, I've heard that. That is a, that is a brilliant quote. I think that is great. And uh, I just think people keep that in mind. You know, it's like when people say, oh, it can't be done or it's just it's been proven that it doesn't work. I, you know, I don't know. I think it's, there's always good problems to, to maybe take a fresh look at and, and see if uh, you got a, a way of doing it or a way of approaching it that nobody else has really tried. And it also kind of reminds me, you know, we were, we were discussing earlier about the you were sort of accusing me of the non-invented here syndrome and, and, and that kind of stuff, that contrarianism. Right. Well, it kind of reminds me of the uh, the exploration versus exploitation um, concept, which is used in machine learning. And I, I've brought that up once or twice in a previous podcast. But it's that when you have an algorithm that's learning, um, you you want it to exploit uh, paths that it, that are, that look more promising based on what it's already learned. But you also want it to explore some percentage of the time much more random or unknown paths that may have no payoff or a negative payoff. And as a rule of thumb, it's kind of like an 80-20, 80% of the time it's exploit, 20% explore. I mean, it obviously depends on the context of what you're doing. But if it's completely explore all the time, then it's kind of a random search. Right? And if you exploit, then what you do is like, oh, we, we, we explored a little bit, and now I'm just going to exploit, and I'm not going to learn anything new. And that's sort of premature optimization. And that's what happens sometimes when people, they get kind of stuck in their ways too early in life, and they don't explore a lot of opportunities. They don't learn and grow much. Where you see a lot of times the people who become really successful and have really interesting lives have continued to challenge themselves by trying new things and going outside of their comfort zones and, and just uh, exploring sort of random paths. Right? So are you saying that you're exploring a random path or that you're exploring? I think, I think by the nature of my personality, I probably try things because based on first principles, to me, they seem like there are higher probability, but to uh, maybe you and certain, and probably the majority of people, they seem that I'm trying a lower probability of success path, a right. path of lower probability of success. So you're looking like, well, Jason, why are you doing that? These X, Y, and Z best practices show that if you do these things, you're going to reach success. But, you know, when you look at distributive learning algorithms like genetic algorithms, you have a lot of different individual agents, a lot of individual copies of the chromosome exploring different paths. And you can't have all of them all looking in the same area. That's why it would really suck if everybody had a MacBook Pro and used Ruby on Rails and, you know, programmed using the same environment and the same tools. And you want people not to all use the same tools and the same methodologies and the same pro- approaches because that you have much lower chance of anyone coming across much more interesting or higher, you know, um, higher payoff uh, outcomes. 
I think I could agree with that. I think that's a pretty good point and well made. So you just, yeah, you should be thankful there are people like me <laughs> who are just going off and you're like, well, you're like, I wouldn't do it, Jason. I think you're low probability, but, you know, whatever. And, and it, just, it just happens in life that it works out that you have a broad range of personality type because there are certain people that no matter what, the, how the odds are explained to them, they're still going to do things the way they want or, or they need to do it. Hey, right? I, I am thankful there's people like you, otherwise we wouldn't even have this podcast. <laughs> right. That's right. So I, you know, and and I admit it too. Like with Appignite, like I, I will go out there and I will go out and say, yeah, I realize that I often take lower probability, uh, riskier paths. But and and I probably would also have to admit that a lot of it has to do with the nature of my personality, less less than me calculating what is the highest probability outcome. You know, Rob Walling, who we had on last week, um, outlined an approach that was a very high probability um, path. And that is probably the right path for a lot of people. And uh, as I explained uh, before, it's probably it's not really the right path for me. But anyway, I just thought that was interesting about the exploration versus exploitation. I always see that come up. I, I learned that a number of years ago. In a, uh, it's sort of a concept that's applied in a field of machine learning called um, reinforcement learning or temporal difference learning. And they talk about it a lot. And I always thought, man, that really applies to things. Okay. Well, so I've got one. Um... Do you know I'm working for this uh, this company, myvibo.com? Yep. So we've just released, uh, since I joined, we've we've done some major updates, so we've just pushed those to live. And uh, I'd just love to get some feedback on them from some of our listeners. Now, let me ask you a question. Initially, the project was built using Flash or Flex? It's, it still is built using Flex, but what we've done is um, we've started to integrate some um, Ajax JavaScript stuff. So now it's a cross between Flex and Ajax. Most of it's Flex, but there's um, the section that I just built was the, the newsreader section and also the forum section, uh, the community section. And now how is the integration between Ajax and Flex working out? Well, actually, basically, we just mimic the look and the, look and the feel in, um, in the Ajax and the HTML of the Flex. So you can't really tell, apart from some of the transition effects are slightly different. But what happens is you click on the main nav and it like flicks in an iframe and then overlays that iframe on top of the flash and then you're using HTML. So what is your perception of Flex in, in comparison to using Ajax? I mean, I know that you weren't as crazy about it. They were using it and they had a lot of expertise put into it. So how is that all sorted out? Well, I mean, I mean my, my general feel about the Flex versus the Ajax issue, the thing, the thing for me is... I'm a kind of stickler for latency and um, just the general feel of something. So what, what I notice about uh, Flex is a couple of things. Firstly, the fonts don't seem to render as sharply on most of the systems that I look at in Flex as they do as HTML. Um, and secondly, there's a kind of a latency factor when you're scrolling, like it doesn't feel quite as smooth. But, right. to, but to be honest, I mean, in a, a main app, major application like this, those two points aren't really that significant like i don't think that it's bad that they built it in flex for example i've never been that crazy about i mean i've seen a lot i've seen i guess a number of uh, web apps that were built in flash completely right. not really that crazy about it. i mean there's certain instances where you need it when it's like really video based or something like that but i prefer when you use it kind of 
uh, for specialized components. Like I think the and Google Finance. The, yeah, the graph, the chart, the the stock prices and stuff is in is in uh, Flash, and and that looks great, you know. And obviously, the video players and stuff and YouTube and things like that are great. But whenever I've seen um, the whole, whenever the whole page is just one big flex app, it always just seems really tacked on. It looks really weird. Remember, do you remember there's a product called Blist? Do you remember those? And it was kind of like an ex- super Excel database kind of thing, and it just felt—it just feels so weird. It just doesn't feel right to well, me. Well, I mean, the way that the way that they've done uh, my Vivo, I think, is pretty good a use of Flex. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the only thing I'd say is that the the really big downside that I can see, the one major drawback, is that with modern um, apps, like basically modern Apple stuff. Your your app can't run on any Apple stuff, basically. So it's not going to run on the iPad. It's not going to run on the iPhone. You can't reuse code for those platforms. So to me, that's the major issue with using Flash or Flex today. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, just to get to the, the point, which is I'd love for any listeners to go to myvibo.com and just um, have a look at it and just send me an email. Um, what do you think of the idea? Uh, what do you think of the user experience? Um, in your opinion, what are the best parts of the site or the idea and what are the worst parts of the site or the idea? And just send me an email to justin at myvibo.com. That's justin at myvibo.com. And myvibo is myvbo.com. So thank you very much for checking that out. All right. So I got something for our hacker health segment. Oh, great. Go go for it. <laughs> so I, I saw a, a post. It was called Exercise Boosts Your Brain. Here's how. Hmm. And it was on Singularity Hub. And essentially, I, I mean, I don't want to go too into the details because, you know, it's it's kind of not really important. But I guess there was something to do with you have some kind of an inhibitor that's in your brain that when you don't exercise that there is more of the inhibitor. For, and the inhibitor is something for for the development of new neurons. So essentially what happens is that the longer and the shorter is if you exercise, it stimulates um, the creation of more neurons. Interesting. <laughs> when you don't. And they did all the tests like on mice and like when they had no exercise will and when they didn't and they increased like I think increased memory and increased some stimulation of certain types of uh, enzymes or something that helped with the development of, uh, of neurons and things like that. So it's just another example of like it's unfortunate that you can't just sit behind your computer all day and not exercise and eat whatever you want and still be as healthy and productive. But the reality is you can't. <laughs> it's like you have to, you really need to exercise. You really need to get outside and get sunlight. You really not need to not sit in your chair all day and not move around. You know, it's like all those things that, you know, you seem like, well, they probably aren't a big deal. But, you know, for people like us who spend a huge amount of time behind a computer thinking and writing code, it's like you kind of got to force yourself to to not do that all the time. Okay, but if that's true, how come there's so many himbos in the world? What are himbos? <laughs> instead, of, <laughs> instead of bimbos, they're himbos. You know, like Joey from Friends. Like basically okay. guys who just work out all the time but who aren't particularly clever. Well, I don't think that exercising makes you smart. I think it probably, um, like for instance, they were giving an example of people um, who exercise when they're older. It staves off the um, things like Alzheimer's disease, right? Or it really decreases the um, progression of of uh, limits the progression of Alzheimer's. And people who older people who do exercise regularly are much sharper, more alert, have better memory, think faster, have faster reactions. Mm mental reactions and it just goes all the way down I mean when you're uh, so I think what it probably does is it just 
it just keeps you keep your brain is sharp if your body's sharp your body's sharp because it's all part of the same thing right and it's just like you know if you treat your body poorly you don't eat well you don't sleep enough or you sleep poorly you don't exercise i just think it you know your 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 brain is part of your body right yeah so I mean, it's just probably it's it's almost intuitive, but the science keeps the science keeps backing up these things. That when you when we when we move further and further away from living how say we evolved to live, you know, fifty thousand, hundred thousand years ago, the, the worse our body seems to do. So anyway, so, that was my that was my uh, topic for hacker health or hacker health segment. <laughs> nice. Did you? Um did you see the logo that Felix Long sent in on the what? on the forum? Yeah, I did. But can I ask you before we get to that? Can I ask you a question real quick? So yeah, sure. you said you've been exercising now what six to eight weeks since you first your doctor kind of wagged his finger at you and said you need to get on. Yeah, I have, and I, I've actually just started to see some some weight loss at this stage. I have think, you? Yeah, I've lost. I've lost kind of. I mean, at first I just thought it was water weight or whatever, but I think I have actually lost maybe four pounds now. Yeah, see, that's good. That's great. Yeah. And uh, and you've you've dramatically reduced your blood sugar, which is the big big issue, right, for diabetes. Yeah, but my my diet. Oh no, I have dramatically. I mean, like it, literally the other this morning or no, yesterday morning it was ninety, and a no- normal blood sugar is is eighty basically. And you and when you when you were first diagnosed with diabetes a couple months ago, where was your blood sugar then? Well, when I walked in and got my first test with the doctor, it was three thirty. Holy smoke! In which case he was like, "Yeah, you're in bad shape." Yeah. So 90, that's fantastic. And so you've been exercising, what, five, six days a week? Uh, yeah, between five and six days. I mean, there, there's been some times where I've missed, missed a couple of days, but not very often. On average, it's about five days a week, I think. And how do you feel? I feel actually just beginning to feel really good, but I also think it's part of the diet that I'm on. And that's, that's a very interesting aspect in itself because the diet that I'm on, which is uh, sort of... Well, it's what I've been recommended because it's the best for diabetics, but it's a very strange kind of diet. And when you hear about it, you think that, that there's no way that could be healthy. But basically, right. it's it's Atkins. It's um, it's it, it isn't actually Atkins, but it's very close to Atkins. It's ask it's Atkins esque. Yeah. So for people who, who for people out there who don't know what Atkins diet is, it's essentially really low carbs. You essentially go off carbs completely for two weeks, and then you reintroduce them slowly, and you try and keep your body in a state of what's called ketosis. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to do though, because we have a lot of carbs in our, it's in our normal diets and it's hard to get, squeeze them all out. And it's really, it's really painful, um, uh, because carbs, if, if you are really satisfying and everybody, you know, most people love their carbs. Well, so. when I go shopping, what I notice is, is that the, the only stuff that I can buy is things like olives, cheese, mm-hmm. spinach, uh, tomatoes, like it's a very Mediterranean diet, basically. It, right. it, it reminds me of the kind of food that's available in France. Like if you go if you go into France and go into a shop, it's difficult to buy any of the stuff that you get in the U.S. You know, a lot it's it's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of bread and croissants, though, right? They do have that, but there's there's a lot of there's a lot of cheese, there's a lot of olives, there's a lot of um, you know eggs, chicken, meat. I mean, that's kind of what it's all all focused. And you're making me hungry now. We have to pick up the podcast later. <laughs> but basically, I've been getting 70% of my calories from fat, right? So every morning, I will have two eggs and some bacon, right? Which I always thought was really, really bad, right? Really mm-hmm. bad breakfast. But that's that's what I'll have. And then at lunch, I'll typically have like a spinach and meat salad. And at dinner, I'll have some, probably we'll go to, I don't know, if we go to a restaurant, I'll have a steak or something. So right. uh, the the interesting thing is, is that when you don't have carbs, so I'm I'm on like 30 grams a day. 
Okay. When you don't wow. have carbs, yeah, that's low. Yeah, that's low. but when you don't have carbs, there's huge amounts of evidence to support the fact that the and of course I don't actually personally know this. I'm just going from what I've read, so I'm not kind of saying this is so. I'm just saying from what I've read. There's huge amounts of evidence to say that the, the saturated fat don't contribute to heart, to any kind of heart attacks or anything like that. And in fact, since I've done it, my cholesterol has dropped hugely. This is what's crazy. I mean, I've just been eating all this fat, but my cholesterol has dropped hugely. Yeah. So if I recall from when I read, I did the Atkins diet for, I did it for like two weeks. I made like the first two weeks and I bailed. Okay. <laughs> it's right. just like 10 years ago. And you know, I probably lost five or eight pounds or something in a couple of weeks. Um, maybe, yeah, something like that. Lost a lot of weight quickly, but it was painful. I, I just couldn't maintain it. But what I remember reading was that, um, you know, so there's a, there's a sort of belief that, okay, if I'm eating fat, then I'm going to create fat in my body or something like that, right. or cholesterol. But that's not really how it works. What what creates the um, your increase of cholesterol in your bloodstream? What put, what sort of increases the development? I guess fat around your heart and um, in your uh, blood vessels and your arteries and stuff is uh, insulin. Right? Is it abnormal levels of insulin and stuff, right. which happens when you eat uh, a lot of um, like refined sugars and, and carbohydrates and things like that. Yeah. So that if is that my recalling correct? It's been like ten years since I read that stuff, but that's pretty much yeah. So basically, if if you like the worst possible scenario is you eat a lot of carbs and you eat a lot of fat, like that's really bad, really yeah. really, really bad. Um, the, like then there's another scenario where you eat a certain amount of carbs and you don't eat, you know, everything's low fat, which is the general thing that's been sold to the world. You know, that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. But there's really really interesting research to show that it's just a lot healthier to do it the kind of caveman way. And totally yeah, I was just going to say that the caveman diet, right? It's right. really good. The caveman diet. You eat like how we, our primitive selves would have eaten. Yeah. You know, you eat you eat probably mostly raw vegetables and fruits, and uh, and you eat some meat. Probably not too much because I don't think our primitive selves were having you know meat for dinner every night. You know. Another kind of weird byproduct is I just feel because you're eating more kind of fat through cheese and cream and eggs and stuff. That fat really does make you feel full. Like yep. you just generally feel full. So like I, uh, it sounds like a stupid diet show, but honestly, I'm just, I'm literally not craving like snacks and stuff. I don't know why. I'm just like feeling full all the time. It's weird. You know, well, it's like, there's only so much steak you can eat, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like eating like, oh, I'm just done. Right. It's like where you could just pack away carbs. You could just, just, you can, you can just cram that in your, in your body, but it's hard to eat too much steak with the fat. You're just like, oh, but you, just- you, this is the thing you don't like, like with Atkins or with basically, I'm not going to call it Atkins. I'm going to call it low carb, high fat, right? With caveman. That, yeah, caveman. Caveman, right? With that diet, like you can f- find dishes that are really nice. Like that's what I have. I found a few different things that I really like and I just eat those again and again and different variations of those. So it's not like I'm totally craving anything sweet or anything carby because I found things that I really like on this plan. See what I'm saying? Well, I think a couple of things are interesting. I was, I'd like to say about this one is, I think you should just go caveman all around. <laughs> that's our advice. <laughs> you just go caveman. Think about what the caveman did and just do that. You know, is the caveman outside good sun? Yes, do caveman. Did the caveman take naps in the afternoon? Yes, do go caveman. Did the caveman eat uh, you know breakfast cereal? No. <laughs> You know, you I think you found the, the title of the show. Water, go caveman, you know. It's go caveman, I, right? Is that the title of the show? Go caveman. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a possibility. Yeah, I, I think that's her one thing. But the other thing is, too, is this, right? And we, we were discussing this early about, and I was saying, you know, the way I do software, the way I create things. And, and I'm just saying, look, that's the way I do it based on my 
my particular context of who I am and what I want to do and how I want to work. And it's not the same for everybody, right? Everybody has their own context, their own constraints, their own personality, and their own uh, sort of knowledge base. Now, the same is like with you. You said, okay, you know, you're eating a certain way and you are seeing results, prim- and most importantly, in your uh, blood sugar levels, which is an important disease that you have to manage, right? Yeah. So no matter what anybody else says, no matter what book says, if your blood sugar is dropping, you are seeing success in your personal case. That is all that matters. Yeah. Right? Your doctor's monitoring. You're seeing success. It's working for you. It doesn't matter if I sit there and go, well, you know what, Justin? I mean, everybody really should eat this many carbs and that. It doesn't matter. Yeah. What matters is what, your, what the data on your health is and what your personal success is. And I, I think that's an important thing. So, yeah, I mean, the caveman diet is definitely working for you. Well, uh, yep. So that's that's it. We should probably probably move off that topic. All right, health. That's our health watch, <laughs> 2010. We've uh, just 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 so everyone knows, um, we actually had to cut this recording into two segments. Uh, previously, um, we'd done an hour and ten, and actually, Jason, just to let you know, we're already on twenty minutes so far on this one. So, okay, I just got a couple quick things I want to bring up. Okay, shoot. Um, one is that uh, there was there was an interesting uh, uh, article called uh, a blog post by a guy named um, I think I can pronounce his name is Vinicius Vicanti. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll put a link to it. I'm not very good at pronouncing names. And the title of the article was called "How New Ideas Almost Killed Our Startup." And he's the founder of a, a startup called Yipet, which I think is like, let's see, he describes it as um, a service that finds you great local deals by learning your tastes. Yeah. Okay. And one thing he talks about is about how you kind of go through this, uh, this curve which of about, about your sort of opinions, about your feelings about your startup. And one, your first stage is called uninformed optimism. And that's like you have this idea, you convince yourself it's really good, there's a lot of market opportunity or whatever, so you're really excited. And then you sort of get some feedback like, well, maybe it isn't as big of a space as you thought it was, or maybe it's going to be harder to convert users, or maybe you have bigger, more well-funded competitors than you thought. And that's called stage two, informed pessimism. Yeah, and then you fall into the, a gully called the stage three, which is called the crisis of meaning, where you really start to get wonder if this thing is going to work or not and that's when you're really prone to like pivot and just switch and keep switching to new ideas and not sticking to your original plan um and if you the next stage either you crash and burn at stage four or you pull out of your gully you pull out of your nosedive and you come to informed optimism like you 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 learned enough to understand what the uh, what the weaknesses are of your product or of your market, but you've com- you figured out how to pivot or address it in a way that's going to be positive. And um, so, anyway, I think that's really interesting uh, um, sort of path because you know I think we we all kind of get in that in that go through those stages. And I don't know what what do you think about that for say uh, plug you and swarm? What have you been your what have been your your path of your sort of psychological path through it? Well, I mean, with Plugio, it's it's always been the same concept. It's basically been a power Twitter client, but my switches have been in marketing ideas, mm-hmm. and sometimes that has been distracting. So maybe I shouldn't have been working on those, trying these different new schemes to try and get more users. Maybe I should have just been making the product better. Right. Um, with Swarm. Um, I I can't really speak to Swarm because 
it's pretty much just a simple game. It's a simple idea and there hasn't been much pivoting. But just generally speaking, my whole my whole career as an entrepreneur, I would say that new ideas almost killed my entrepreneurial career because I kept switching. What I've learned to do now is to see a project through. At least reach a stopping point. Yeah. Right? At least get something built and get it out there. Don't leave it at 80% built and just sitting on your hard drive. That's, yeah, which that I've done really lots. sucks. Yeah. yeah, I think we've all done a ton. And I mean, you know, if you're going to get it past like the just, I mean, it doesn't mean every time you start experimenting with something and playing with something for a couple of days, you have to work on it for six months. But it, if you decide to put, build something, then find, find an endpoint that you think you can reach and just go for it. Where the endpoint is six weeks or six months or two years, whatever it is, just reach it. Yeah. Do it. Like finish it. Because if you stop halfway, I mean, you can say, oh, well, I learned a lot. And that's worth something. But that's really just, that's really a consolation prize. You know, if you can get something that people can use and or people can or you can use or at least you get some kind of value beyond just a learning. Because I think a learning experience, you know, we all learn, but that's just that's just such a, a low return on that much effort. Yeah. I think. So, I mean, you know, and, and as, we've, as we mentioned, I mean, because what's helped you finish these things is part of, part of it, I think, the public accountability that we talk about this stuff. Right. But like, for instance, in Swarm, it's really helped that Sebastian's jumped on board and added this, all this additional sort of enthusiasm and, and fuel to the fire. Yeah, and the fact we've we've spoken about it on the show a few times, and when we had David Fogel, and just the whole the whole thing adds up to making me interested. Yeah, right. But um, you know, and I don't think Swarm's a little thing. Obviously, you put a ton of hours into it over the years, right? <laughs> I guess that is true, but it just seems hundreds of hours. It's not a li- it's a game, but it's hard to come up with a new game. I mean, I wouldn't diminish it and say it's just a little game. I'd say it's a it's a and I, and I wouldn't and I, I like I mentioned I think in a previous conversation I think it's not really a niche product i mean it's you're you're going after a very broad category of board game i guess and um you know it was risky in the sense that you know you're trying to go after something that's very hard to introduce and get any traction on and i think it's cool though thank you you know i mean i think it's cool that you're doing it i think i think some of us every once in a while it's like you know sometimes you can play it safe and play hyper probability and say look you know, this is going after a niche, this is a small thing, and I'm going to get some traction. But sometimes it's worth taking a shot, you know? Let's just, just, you know, swing for the rafters, man. You know, just, you know, go big, right? I mean, every once in a while, you got to go big, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't <laughs> Inspirational like Inspirational advice from Jason. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, you know, it's like, it's like in baseball. I'm not a big baseball fan. My wife uh, is. Sandy loves baseball. And, you know, during the summer, it's on constantly. And she's a huge Cubs fan and all this stuff. But so I kind of get exposed to it more than <laughs> I want to, I more guess. More than you but, want to, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we're, you know it's funny. Our, our sort of default station at night when we're both kind of reading and just kind of chilling out is, is Sports Center. That's kind of like our background noise. Yeah. And they're always covering baseball. And sometimes they joke about, like, there's certain teams that are successful, and they, they play a type of baseball called small ball, which they're not really hitting going for home runs. They're just getting on base and you know, bunting, and they're just kind of, you know, singles and doubles and trying to get on base. With other teams, uh, you know, are really swinging for home runs, like really going for the crowd applause and really going to, like, and it's like you got to make sure you have hitters that can do that. I mean, to succeed as a as sort of, as a, you know, home run team, home run hitting team. Yeah. But it's, it's 
it's fun and it's exciting. You know, I don't think you can spend make every project and try and make it a home run. Like this is going to be huge and just make a big splash because they're lower probability things. But I think they're fun and they're inspiring and the kind of things that get you really excited. Um, so I think it's like a balance. You know, it's like sometimes play small ball, get on base. You know, it's just like consulting. Consulting is like small ball, right? I'm selling yeah. my hours. I'm making cash every month, putting money in the bank. You know, that's good, right? Yeah. It's not, my consulting isn't inspiring anybody. It's making my customers happy. You know, I'm gotten to get any long-term leverage off of it. And I'd say Plugio for you might have been more of small ball. You never, you never planned for it to be a huge deal, and it's turned out to be sort of a, a consistent moneymaker for you. But Swarm, I feel like, is a bigger you're, – you're swinging for the rafters on this one. Yeah, I do, I do think it has that kind of high-level potential. I'm, I'm gobsmacked and surprised because, I mean, I was just – thinking today i was trying to remember to the moment that i very first thought of swarm where it came from and mm-hmm. i actually remember it was when i was uh just the first time when i met my wife in dublin and mm-hmm. um i was wait waiting to to meet her and um because on, on a date and i was sitting in a pub and playing with some beer mats and as i was playing with the beer mats i like was putting them together and playing around and i thought oh that looks a bit like a puzzle and the concept came to me hey wouldn't it be cool to have a board game that was like lego legos where you could just build the board game as you go right. so, I, so i built that all up out of hexagons and tried to play it with a bunch of different people and what i realized was that it was probably quite complicated as an initial concept but i did right. find that one board type and that one game and then i kind of focused on that and so that's actually where it came from huh. so so it was it, it it ended up being like once again focusing in on a, a smaller piece of a larger problem just from that, from sitting in the pub, pub playing with beer mats, I think you're right. I do think it could potentially be a big, you know, big business one day. I think it is. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, well, the good thing strange. about it, the good thing about it is, it, is it is that you know, when you talk about going big, I mean, it doesn't mean that it has to be all or nothing. You know, like if you get venture funding. You know, you you're either gonna have to go public or, or be acquired by a large company to to see any real return on that. Yeah. You know, at least we're at least if we're talking financially. Um. And 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 in your case, like even if it's a modest success, it's it's still a success. So you're kind of oh, yeah. you're kind of, but it also has the opportunity to be a big success. So it's kind of nice, right? It can. You're trying to introduce a new board game. That's a big. That's a big challenge but at the same time it looks like you're already making some money just making through sales to the app store and by the way what are your sales to the app store um, it's it it's really really slowed down because they've they've taken it off the front page it's like pulling in between four and ten sales a day now okay and now when you guys release the next Can, version that has an ai in it the cool thing about that is it's not like building a software as a service business Right, where you've got lots of support to do. You know, you know the way you're talking about App Ignite, and you're thinking, should I do software as a service? Should I let them offload it? What's kind of cool about building something like a game is it's just a software. It's just a piece of software that people download and install, and mm-hmm. so it scales very well. Right? If if a million people buy that, that doesn't increase your support level. Right. Which is kind of cool. So it's like you know the way we're always searching for the best business model. You know, the mm-hmm. best business model in terms of quality of life. And right. um, what also can bring in a decent amount of money. I'm beginning to think that software is a pretty good business model, just like not software as a service software, but just software. Okay. Let me show this. Um, just real quick for a status update. What, what's the status with the speed of the AI? Remember we were talking about how um, Sebastian was making it faster and faster, got down from 16 seconds to 8 to 4 to 2. Yeah, he's got, it, he's got it to something like two seconds now. 
Um, okay. I've played the last version on the smaller boards. It works actually kind of good. Um, it takes your, it, it really does take the pieces very quickly. Okay. Um, so that's kind of cool because obviously the search space is smaller. Right. Right. Yeah. But it's It's coming along nice. Well, that sounds very reasonable. And um, are you? Do you think you're going to roll out an iPhone version? Oh, I, I definitely. Yeah, definitely. So at some stage, it's just a question of. I mean, the tricky the tricky thing about working with uh, HTML and CSS as your medium is to do something like migrate from the iPad to the iPhone is probably a little bit harder unless you're quite clever with the way that it's rendering the page in the first place. So now I've got, I'm kind of working to a point where I'm literally inserting all the the DOM components and then sizing them manually so that I can overall create a scale vector. Right. So I can just kind of put that scale vector to 1.5 or whatever. And so when the app launches, it's going to look at what size the screen it's on. Yes. And then it's going to basically redraw the whole page with that scale vector. I can't do something like use CSS3 and zoom up or zoom down the page because there's a whole bunch of other bugs that that introduces. Right. Well, that'll be cool. And then, of course, luckily, with, that, with like we mentioned, with uh, Titanium, you can target uh, Android as well. So yeah, you, you can, can target Android phones and Android tablets and everything. And desktop. And desktop, right. Because I think this is going to be a desktop app as well. Oh, yeah, well, that, that sounds great. That's, that's, that's cool. So and what's, c- the story, what's the story with Plugio? Plugio is um, it's just kind of tinkering. It's tinkering along. Tinkering along. Okay. <laughs> it's pottering along at its own pace. People use right. it. Uh, I got an email from users today saying that the search streams weren't working. So that's something I'm going to have to look into over the next couple of days. But, okay. uh, yeah. Well, I've been working on uh, Quantifier, um, the, uh, the machine learning library. I've been working, right, what I was working on a little bit this week was the, um, and I don't put too much time into it. I just play around with it a little bit here and there um, because I don't want to take too much time away from App Ignite. And, and uh, of course, I have consulting work to do. But, um, I, I've I've created like a, a really slick wizard interface for the app because there's a library, but the library is not really useful unless you have some way to some kind of an app or something. I mean, I need some way to test it, and I want to put something up so people can paste some data in, select some algorithms, select figure out what they want to do, and 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 actually run it. Right. So, in order to do that, so that it makes sense, it's not too confusing. I, I created a, a, a wizard-based approach. So, like step one, you know, paste in a bunch of tabular data. Step two, you know, pick out what, you know, do you, what you want to do. Do you want to have a prediction algorithm for a particular, you know, which column, that kind of stuff. Step three, pre-process, normalized data. Step four, pick your algorithms. You know, whatever. So, one thing I did was really cool is the, is like I said, the creation of the wizard. So that was really fun. And another thing is I needed to create a um, sort of a table that looked like a grid um, that was a scrollable where the headers were fixed. Right. Um, and, you know, that was actually not too hard. I mean, I did it in like an hour or so, but I created this really slick thing. So what you do is I have the table that sits in a div, right? And the, t- the div has overflow auto or something. Yeah. And, you know, the problem, the, the challenge you have, though, is that if you just have a normal table in there, the, the, the top header row will just scroll up, right? So that's not going to work. And I didn't want to draw it, so it's like, well, I draw some kind of headers above the div because that looks kind of weird. It doesn't look very cool. So if you look like a grid, like on Windows or the Mac, the the grid is within sort of the scroll, the scrollable window. Yeah. I mean, the uh, the header is within the scrollable window. And so what I did, I said, all right, I'll is I is I is I t- write some JavaScript to take a look at 
in and, and, and look at the size and everything of the actual um, header line, and then it draws a it puts a div that has a z index that's on top of the actual table and and has the exact same properties and everything in, in uh, as the actual grid. So when you're scrolling, it doesn't move and it looks like a normal grid. So that was kind of cool. That's a good idea. Yeah, it was that was kind of neat. Um, and it was fun to build that. So, because when you paste in your data and then it does an analysis and says, all right, well, here are your five or your 10 columns, column, and you know, you want to be able to just display, well, column three is this variable name, right? And you'll be able to scroll through and you might have 5,000 or 50,000 or however many uh, rows. And you want to be able to scroll through and kind of look at and kind of eyeball the data and see how it normalized it and, and that kind of stuff. So, does it use position absolute to stay there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. So he sits on top of it, sit a position, absolute, you know, position of left and top of zero and uh, Z index. I don't think after doing Z index of zero, you just, you know, if it's, it's if it's, um, as long as it's after the initial table, it'll just be, end up being on top of it. Yeah. Excellent. And, idea. uh, that was, you know, it was very easy. It doesn't take up any processing. So if you have a resize, you just do it on resize. So whenever you resize the actual div that contains the table, you resize the table and then you resize the little header div. And so I suppose it, what you're, pa- you're putting some padding on the top of the table or doing a margin on top of the table or something. Well, actually, because what you do is you make the very first row is the, is the header row. Right. And you just make actually a clone of it, <laughs> which huh. is in the div that sits on top of it, right? Because you want it to be the exact same height so that when it's, when it's scrolled all the way up, that it, it looks normal. So do you, um, that's something that I do in jQuery quite a lot is I'll, I'll do something like that. But rather than manually create the clone, I'll basically load the app and then use jQuery to get that element I'll get the HTML and then reinsert it in the DOM. Do you do something like that? Or, or? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, sweet. you just kind of you know, create like that. So, I mean, my, my, my JavaScript library that I use is very similar. I mean, I, I was looking at jQuery the day. It is very similar to jQuery. <laughs> it's like JSON query. That's you fantastic. Know? Do you use chaining in your library? I don't use chaining very much. I've never really... Because what I do, one thing I see is that it seems like in a lot of this jQuery, at least in examples and things that I've looked at, you'll do something like you'll put like the dollar sign and you'll put like an ID or a class name and you'll, which will grab either that element or all the elements that match that class name and, and then you'll do something to them. What I usually do, because I, I do things in a very object oriented sort of way and my code looks a lot like C sharp or C++ or something. All right. So everything is, 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 is sort of objects. And so I'll, I'll, I'll say some function, you know, is it needs to get a member variable that says the div. I'll say this dot div equals dollar sign and whatever the ID is. And I just maintain a variable to that div. Right. right? I don't every time I need it go query for it. I mean, I just do it once. And then I have a, then I have a handle to it. And then I, you know, manipulate that handle. So I find that simpler. So a lot of times in the init or constructor, or if I'm doing like a lazy um, query, well, I'll query it if I need it, I'll just do it once, and then I have a, a sort of a handle to it. You know that this is going to be an incredibly long show, right? We, we, this section's 40 minutes already. Okay. <laughs> On All top right. of one hour 10. Okay. Well, that's fine. We can, uh, we can wrap it up then. Um, do you want to see something about the TechCrunch, uh, the, the Texing logo? Uh. Oh, yeah, just that um, Felix Long, um, maybe I'll just quickly read out a couple of emails that were sent in. Felix Long uh, sent via Twitter and also posted on the um, on the boards, on the forum, texting forum, uh, basically his idea of a logo. Did you see that? Like, I did. It was like a Texing with like a spaceship al- or something? With an alien. <laughs> yeah. The well, G like was the red, an alien. You know, like, you know, like Reddit has the alien logo? <laughs> That's like we right, have yeah. <laughs> so I also got an email from... Um, Steve, uh, I don't have his surname, 
basically he says, hi, Justin, I just wanted to say hi and thank you for your podcast. I'm a coder developer living in France, <laughs> originally from London. Uh, my latest project is casa.co.uk. That's K-A-R-S-A.co.uk. And then he finishes it off with, I'll be stalking you from now on. Smiley face. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so something else we had posted to the board was Neville says that we should, we, rather than calling it Generation Zero, we should call it Iteration Zero. Iteration Zero, right. <laughs> because That's not bad. It, yeah, all, all Agile projects, that you, you have your first Iteration Zero, which is basically where you set up the project. It's the beginning of things. Right, I like that. Well, that was always my thought, like a theme. is like we Really what our core theme is the, is the, uh, the process of creation, of creating something. Yeah. You know, I don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be software, but it's just kind of creating something out of nothing, something cool. But, <laughs> but Iteration Zero, it, let's just say it's not the catchiest name in the world. Yeah, well, it's, it's so hard to so hard to settle a name, obviously, because we have we never seem to settle. We'll probably like uh, episode one thousand fifty eight. What are we going to call <laughs> this thing anyway? <laughs> like a retirement home, arguing about the name. Well, you know, uh, Joan, uh, do you remember Joan's last name? He was the one who who actually designed um, a texting logo for us. Uh, no, I don't know. Oh, let's look that up. I've got so. one more email to read out. Yeah, it's Joao da Silva. Yeah. And the reason I can sort of pronounce that is I have a good friend named Joao. Okay. Who, he still says I say it wrong, so he, he says everybody in the U.S. just calls him, have, he always has them call him Jack. He's <laughs> like, nobody can say it. He's like, forget it, just call me Jack. <laughs> but so, yeah, he, he came up with some uh, some cool ideas for the Texing logo, so we definitely appreciate that. And uh, I think Joao said he, he was going to let us know what his... Um, portfolio is so that we can help get, you know return the favor and, and bring some attention to stuff he's working on okay cool um so then also the final email i've got is from jim o'halloran and mm-hmm. um i'm just going to su- summarize his email basically he says he tends to listen to texting on his way to work so it's, okay. a, it's a commute show for him uh, he's been listening since episode one um this is the first time he's commented in in, <laughs> in the 56 episodes he's listened to um, he wanted to talk about App Ignite, and he said that exporting App Ignite might be more trouble than it's worth due to the local environments, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's a very good point. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, and I think that – I think ultimately I'm going to have to come up with some kind of a hybrid model um, that really depends on – you know, I guess it depends on the direction. I don't think I have to figure it out to start. But what I might do is host it to start, and then ultimately either create a relationship with a um, hosting provider like a Rackspace or something, or use something like EC2 so we can deploy the exact environment and they can have their own sort of virtual machine or something like that. I think so because like another point that he makes, which is which is well taken, is that designers or, to be honest, any of your target market may not easily have their own servers. You know, yeah, and yeah. It's too much. It's too much of a. It's too much of a barrier. It's too much of a pain to ask people to have to deploy and set up another account. Yeah. But what you, what I think, what you want to do is you want to make it easy for anyone, whether you're a coder or a designer or neither, and you want to get something up real quick that you can do it without having to go through a bunch of headache. Um, but what you also want to do is give people a path who want to customize it and write some custom code to integrate with it or integrate with other things that they're doing. Give them the ability to do that. You don't want to lock them in. They're like, well, you know. I could build this little thing, but we got all this other stuff and we can't extend it. And that really puts a ceiling on what we can do. I, I don't want to do that. Right. And my whole, f- a couple of philosophies, guiding principles that I've had from the start with Epic Night is one, which is make the easy things easy and the hard things possible, which I think is the old pearl. Yeah. 
statement. And I, I, I agree with that completely. I mean, you should be able to set up a basic web application or even a reasonably um, complicated one that, you know, really quickly without any, without any coding and without any particular knowledge. Um, and, but if you need to do some custom stuff, you need to write some custom code to do some really interesting, you know, uh, sort of very specific algorithms or integrate with some other systems or integrate with some other APIs, you should be able to do that. And that's, that's going to be my philosophy for this, with Epic Night. So that's really what I'm going to be trying to do. The second thing is um, that I want the greatest possible turn for the fewest, for the, for the least amount of effort. Right. So, how much how much gets generated? How much is created with the fewest number of clicks? Like fewest number of decisions? Like you just, you know, it'd be great if you have three, four, five clicks and something happens. Something you know, something happens. Not like oh, I have to, you know, because right now if you want to build an app, application, you or I, I mean, you have to write a ton of code and use frameworks and stuff. I mean, it's a tons of decision, tons of code, tons of of uh, of, of thought going to it. So my goal is to decrease that ratio. To the point that there's very little effort and very much, very little decision making or hard decision making that has to go into creating something that is valuable to people. And that's a very worthy goal. And yeah, I can't wait till you make it so I can start uh, popping out little uh, micro businesses left, right, and center. I hope so too. And I, I got a lot of really nice. By the way, I've gotten, a, I've gotten a lot of nice feedback, and I really appreciate everybody's who's, uh, who, who's commented on the topic of Epic Night and who sent me emails uh, in support of it, or because they, they have an interest in it. And um, I'm doing my best to get it out as quickly as I can. I'm shooting for the, end of the summer. We'll see. Hopefully, I can get there. I just it, it, the reason it's taking so long is it's obviously a big problem, and I just don't want to hand out uh, something that's just a piece of junk and it's just breaking. I mean, I don't want to waste anyone's time. Um, obviously, whatever I do release will still be a very early version and it's going to get prettier and more powerful and easier to use and all those things. But I just want to get to the point where you can create something without too much pain. And you know where to go to find out about that. Go to appignite.com and just plug your email into the uh, email sign-up list. Yes, please. So I don't feel so bad that I have few, so few emails. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, give us it. You know, put your email on the list and uh, yeah, we'll be part, of the, uh, be part of the private alpha, beta, whatever you want to call it. So I guess uh, that's probably a, a show for us, huh? Yeah, I think so. I think it's been a pretty good show. It's a, a longer show than normal because we split it up into the two, the two halves, and um, maybe the and first. I talk, and I talk too much as usual, so <laughs> that's just always. I wasn't going to say it. I wasn't going to say it, but since you say it, <laughs> all right, that's a wrap. We're out. You right there? <laughs> Just sneezing. <laughs>